Welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 266, Volkanovski versus Ortega. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen, the executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network and the producer of numerous shows for the network, including, of course, the Schillen and Duffy Show, which brings you the recaps after these events. Keith, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, brother. I love how I just one time made a joke that I'm the executive producer, and you just you've given me that title every time since. Like hey. I would I would say um, John John Brennigan is probably the executive producer. Uh, I just <laughs> threw that name out there once, but I appreciate the love. Hey, he he's definitely the producer in the sense of he produces the products that go up <laughs> on 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 the page. But uh, you gave yourself a battlefield promotion, and damn it, I'm going to honor it. So uh, you go, executive producer. Um, <clears throat> So we're, we're staring down UFC 266. One thing I will say about this card is you and I pretty much week in and week out will kind of lament what has happened to the average weekly fight night card. Just, you know, we'll look at the card and before we even break down any individual fights, we're just talking about, wow, this is leftovers night or this is, uh, you know, Pizza Hut, Pizza Buffet. Uh, you know, we'll be looking at, wow, you know, there are four or five fighters on on the prelims on losing streaks there could be four fighters cut after this card during even during that era of you know the watered down fight night card the ufc still brings it for most of their pay-per-views uh and i say that of course in light of the one that we're going to be watching this saturday uh obviously there's a a a double header of title fights at the top one of which is you know looks to be super competitive on paper, the other of which not so much, but hey, we get to see one of the best fighters in the world in action. It's got a weird rematch 17 years in the making, and then the rest of the main card is full of fights with anywhere from near to immediate title consequences for their divisions. Like it is a very, very packed main card. And then even the uh, the undercard, there's nobody on that undercard that's, in immediate danger of being cut. Like there's nobody on a two fight losing streak, three fight losing streak. There's nobody who's lost three of four. Uh, there are a couple of new fighters signed for this card and we'll get to who they are and why in a few minutes. But for the most part, even the undercard is just stacked with relevant veterans, solid prospects, and even some contenders. I mean, Dan Hooker is on the prelims, you know? Yeah, I'm looking at the card right now and going I went eight deep from starting with uh, Shamil Adarahimov versus Chris Dacus. You go from that fight up and tell me, tell me that every single fight from that fight up at least could headline a fight night. Like not the, you know, Dacus in the main event versus Adarahimov. That's not the sexiest main event, but like that would be the one like, oh, yeah, they, they needed something. Certainly, like the UFC has done this. has done worse in the last year. Yeah, that's how deep this card is. Like, it's a mm-hmm. deep, deep card. It's it's a good card. It it absolutely is. Uh, yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm always excited to dive into these cards with you, even if the card is kind of junk. You know, we'll just end up talking about like old school stuff, or or you know, just kind of having a laugh at some of the things. But this one, I'm just legitimately excited to dive into. Uh, if you're watching this, it's probably already at least Thursday morning, but as of Wednesday night, when we are recording this, uh, the card had dropped from 14 fights to 13. Uh, two fighters fell off on Wednesday. Uh, Manon Fioro against Mayura Bueno Silva. Uh, Fioro was forced to withdraw. They scrapped that fight completely. Uh, and 
Nick Maximov versus Carl Roberson. Roberson was forced to withdraw due to a illness due to weight cut. They did bring in an opponent for him. It's Cody Brundage, who was actually going to fight on Dana White's contender series in like two weeks. Instead, he's just getting drafted straight up and he'll be making his octagon debut this weekend. So uh, we'll be breaking down this card as it is currently structured. Hopefully nothing else changes. Uh, knock on wood that Dan Hooker and Nazrat Hakparas both make it into the country uh, <laughs> without any uh, complications. Anything else or should we uh, hit these prelims? No, yeah, let's get into it. We have a, we have a loaded card. All right. Uh, first one up is a featherweight matchup between Jonathan Pierce and Omar Morales. Pierce, the 29-year-old Tennessee native, is 10 and four overall. He is one and one since joining the UFC out of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he debuted back in 2019. Uh, got blitzed by Joe Lozon in his debut. Came back from that last November and knocked out Kai Kamaka in the third round of, or sorry, the second round of their matchup to even up his octagon tally. He's taking on Morales. Uh, Morales, who bears the not very creative but extremely accurate nickname of Venezuelan fighter, is 35 years old, out of Caracas. He's 11 and one overall. He is three and one in the UFC, uh, having also joined out of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series. He has beaten Dong Yan Ma. Gabriel Benitez, and most recently Shane Young, uh, whom he took on back at UFC 260 in March. His only loss in the UFC, a unanimous decision to Giga Chikadze, which in hindsight has aged pretty well. Uh, Chikadze has made a lot of more heralded fighters look a lot worse. Odds in this one favor Morales. He is minus 155 or so. You can get Pierce around plus 130, plus 135 as the, uh, the slight to moderate underdog. Uh, Keith, it's Dana White's Contender Series versus Dana White's Contender Series. You better believe I'm flipping this one to you. Who have you got and why? Yeah, it actually hurts me a little bit when you say that because I'm not previewing this season, which is the first <laughs> one I haven't done. Uh, and that just simply comes down to I, I've taken more responsibility with SureDog doing the UFC previews every week and, and doing one championship previews. Uh, it still hurts me because that's like my probably my favorite thing to do. But I'll say this about Jonathan Pierce. I love that he trains at a fight ready, uh, you know, joining one of the best teams, a team that I've always thought is, is just continued to, you go to fight ready, you continue to make improvements, but he's much better than I thought he was going to be uh, on the contender series. And I thought I was right about him, that he wasn't that high level when I actually picked him to beat Joe Lozon and Joe Lozon smoked him. And then I was like, wow, this guy really isn't UFC level, but he's looked pretty good. Like the win over Kai Kamaka in his last one, he looked good. Uh, he's, he's, he's tall for the weight class. Fairly athletic, I'd say like a plus athlete. He works behind a jab, accurate straight right hand. He tends to uh, lack head movement, which I don't like. But he, I love that he will throw out like a flying knee, lots and lots of kicks. That's like his main striking weapon. Kicks to the body. Uh, he likes to close the distance, plumb clinch, likes knees up the middle. Uh, he has a very wrestle-heavy background and game plan where he's going to shoot on the, on the hips, take it down. Uh, if he doesn't take it down from entries, he's he's going to look for body lock clinches. Uh, he'll actually throw out a lateral drop. I've seen that before, uh, more in the regional scene than than I've seen in the UFC. And I really hope he doesn't try that in UFC because it's not going to work against too many people. Uh, if he 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 will shoot drop steps, but I don't think he has like a power double, and he doesn't really chain wrestling takedowns together. I think he's uh, he's he's better off of a body guy. Uh, if he gets behind you though, he's always trying to excite the crowd. He'll throw in a suplex. 
Uh, we've seen that on the regional scene. Uh, I've always said that suplex is more waste your energy than anything. Then it just looks good. Uh, on top, good ground and pound. When he is taken down, though, he tends to give up his back and scrambles. He, he He's not concerned about someone taking his back. And I've seen him gas out late in fights. As for Morales, Morales is uh, a pressure striker, very aggressive on the feet, uh, pretty fast. He's a good athlete himself also. He hits hard. He also lacks head movement, which uh, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm very hard in that. That <laughs> I expect everyone to be uh, Israel Adesanya. He took a lot of damage in his fight against Giga Chikasi, and as we saw in Edson Barroza, we should be expecting a lot of people to be taking damage. But I actually thought it showed how durable he is because he's, he was fairly competitive in that fight. Like, he clearly lost, but uh, he had moments in that fight which showed his durability, which makes me feel a lot better. Hard leg kicks. He does check kicks well, too, which I like. One of the few fighters who does. He's very physically strong when he gets in the clinch. I would say he's an okay grappler. I think Pierce should have a big advantage in the grappling. But he'll he'll throw and he'll you know he'll keep you honest. He'll sneak in a takedown himself. Not much of a submission threat. As far as prediction goes, I'm gonna go with Morales. He's he's I think he's a okay enough wrestler to have moments where he, where Pierce is gonna have to stand with him. Pierce is no slouch on the feet. Like he'll have moments too. So this is gonna be a pretty back and forth fight. But I think Morales will take stop the takedowns. My one concern is that he doesn't throw leg kicks because he's worried about Pierce taking him down. And if he doesn't do that, that's a huge weapon that he won't have at his disposal. That's actually one of the best part of his game. However, he is the more well-rounded fighter. I think he's tough takedowns, and I think he lands the, the hardest shots in the feet. Give me Morales in a close decision. I, I feel like you're seeing this one as a, a pretty close fight. I'm feeling the same way. Uh, I am uh, going to lean in the other direction, though. And it's only because I see Pierce as someone who is probably still improving. You know, he, he's not even 30 yet. Uh, you know, I, I thought, I mean, we didn't really see much in the Lausanne fight. It was done in 90 seconds. But even just from his... Uh, you know, his fight on the Contender Series to his fight against Kai Kamaka. You know, he's showing improvements. As you pointed out, Fight Ready is a great place for him to be. And then with Morales, I mean, he's at, at the very least, he's a finished product. And as you know, for a guy in the featherweight division who will be 36 in a couple weeks, and as you point out, has taken a lot of damage in at least, you know, one of his fights. And I mean, he's gotten, you know, dinged up in in several of them you're just kind of waiting for the bottom to fall out. So I'm not saying that that's going to be like a drastic overnight thing, but just on the expectation that he might be starting to lose that first step and that I think Pierce is still improving from fight to fight, I'm going to lean uh, towards Pierce to take the decision in this one. We now head up to the welterweight division for a matchup between Matthew Semmelsberger and the debuting Martin Sano. Semmelsberger, the 28-year-old out of Maryland, is 8-3 overall. He's 2-1 in the UFC and uh, fought most recently in June at UFC on ESPN Korean Zombie versus Ige, where he dropped a unanimous decision to Kalen Chaos Williams. That was his first uh, UFC defeat. He had debuted with wins over Carlton Minus and Jason Witt. He'll be taking on Sano, the... Uh, again, debuting fighter is 30 years old, uh, fighting out of Nick Diaz's academy. 
Uh, he is four, two, and one overall. Fought most recently at Bellator 172, all the way back in February of 2017, where he had a majority draw with uh, Diego Herzog. Uh, that put a stop to a two-fight losing streak for him uh, in Bellator and World Series of Fighting. Odds on this one, you will not be too surprised to know that Semmelsberger is one of the biggest favorites on the card. He is approaching minus 500, where you can get Sano uh, creeping up towards minus 400 as the substantial underdog. As I mentioned off the top, uh, pretty much hey, everything I, on this. Can I stop yeah, you for a second? Before of course. we get into your, your breaking down of the fight and your prediction, let me ask you, if you're if you were working for the UFC and UFC brass and you're looking for talent, you're a scout for them. Are you telling the UFC brass to sign a guy who has lost two out of his last three fights? His last fight was a draw. That was five and a half years ago and hasn't won a fight in seven and a half years ago. Is that the guy you're submitting? Like, this is the guy we should sign? I'm certainly not, but... <laughs> as, also as, 30 I years old. as I mentioned off the top, pretty much everything on this card makes a lot of sense. However, there are two students slash teammates of Nick Diaz debuting on this card. One of them makes sense. He had an <laughs> yeah, appearance absolutely. on Dana White's Contender Series, which he won. And while it was a little weird, he's someone who probably would have ended up in the UFC or at least with another shot on the Contender Series sometime within the next six to 12 months anyway. The other yeah. one is Martin Sano. So <laughs> okay. I, I don't so think it had... Sorry to interrupt you. You can carry on. I just wanted to... No, it's just, okay. I imagine this was like, okay, Diaz will come back and fight, but this is what we need to do. <laughs> you got to take him with you. <laughs> well, I think that's that's literally it. You know, the same way that uh, Talos Leites, you know, got another shot back in the UFC out of nowhere just because he was besties with uh, Fabrizio Verdum. You know, and uh, that's go. and but he actually parlayed that into a couple more wins and like a, a nice little late run, a few more paychecks here. I mean, I think even if you plucked up the 2017 version of Sano and dropped him right in the cage here, it would be a bad matchup for him against Semmelsberger, let alone uh, not having fought at all in five and a half years. Uh, Semmelsberger. He is a big, strong welterweight. I would say he's a slightly plus athlete by UFC standards. On the standards of the regional scenes he came up through, he looked like a superhero. Like, <laughs> he was just overwhelmed people with speed, power, dynamism. He still has plus athleticism at, at the UFC level, but clearly he's having to learn, you know, which parts of his game he can make work against UFC-level athletes. And I think we saw that in the Chaos Williams fight. Because that one... Everyone, or at least I was like, okay, well, this thing's over in 60 seconds one way or the other because one of these dudes is just going to blow the other one's head off. Instead, Chaos Williams came in, fought an unaccustomedly just kind of smart and buttoned-down fight and just ended up being quicker, faster, more uh, technically sound than Matthew Semmelsberger and won a decision in a fight that was conducted mostly on the feet. Uh, that didn't really turn me off of Semmelsberger. He's a, a young guy. you know. I mean, he's 28. He's young in fight miles you know, 11 fights, many of which did not make the final uh, uh, bell. So not a ton of tread off the tires in terms of cage time. I think he's still a developing fighter. I, I feel pretty good about him as a welterweight prospect. You know, I, I, I'm i not screaming future title contender, but he's a guy that's going to win more than he loses and, and maybe creep into uh, the lower ranges of the rankings at some point in his run. All of that is bad news for Sano. Uh, Sano is a shorter 
squad or uh, welterweight, even by, you know, 2015, 2016 standards. I don't know what he looks like physically right now. We haven't been to weigh-ins yet. I, you know, I haven't seen any fight week footage of him, but I'm not going to guess that he's improved in that time. Uh, Sano is, you know, he is a grappler by preference, as you would expect for someone uh, coming out of, uh, you know, Nick Diaz's academy. His routes to victory against Semmelsberger are not good. If this, if Semmelsberger doesn't want this to go to the ground, it's not going to go to the ground. Uh, Semmelsberger is a hard hitter. I just Semmelsberger by first round TKO. I, I think he's just going to beat him up on the feet. You know, maybe there'll be a desperation takedown attempt in there and just hammer fist elbows to the side of the head, and this thing is over. Yeah, Semmelsberger, as you mentioned, he is a good athlete. They're going to mention that he, you know he's a former NCAA football player. They're going to mention that and. Uh, defensively, he has a high guard, similar to the Diaz brothers. But uh, the one negative he does, he backs up on the center line. Everything else, I kind of like about him for a guy who's you know newer to the UFC. Good output on on the feet, fast hands, nice snap on his punches. Kind of gave Kamal Worthy a, a very competitive fight in, in their matchup. But I actually thought if he threw more, he might have won. Uh, I love his counter right hand. I love uh, that he goes to the body. Hard kicks, good power. I mean, we saw that beautiful knockout of Jason Witt uh, two fights ago. He can wrestle, too. He good entries. He needs to improve his top control. As you mentioned, he went against Carlton Minus, and he struggled to keep Carlton Minus on the ground in that fight. He also slowed down in the Carlos fight. And he little and I didn't like his output in the Common Worthy fight, so I wonder if cardio is a little bit of an issue, and that's why he turned it down a little bit. Now, move over to... Martin Sano. I'm not going to pretend like I know that much, but like I've seen a whole bunch of him. We all know he got signed because he's Nick Diaz's friend. He's kind of the the Johnny Drama of the UFC. Like, he, he, if you want to visit Chase, you got to take Johnny Drama. Hopefully, hopefully, he'll get that <laughs> reference. Uh, it, the guy hasn't fought five years. Uh, this and what I've seen, this dude isn't good. I was watching the fight where uh, his last fight where he fought in Bellator, and Frank Trid, Trigg was referee in the fight. And I was 100% convinced that 50-year-old Frank Trigg would have beat his ass at night if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> he's not a good athlete. He's soft in the midsection. He has this weird footwork thing where he shuffles his feet and never really has a base underneath him. He reaches for his punches, kind of just rolls wildly. He also headhunts. To his credit, he does have two subs on his record against very low-level competition. And I saw him get a to win rounds by just resting in the clinch against the cage and like occasionally throwing shots and Frank Trey refused to break the fighters up. And his opponent was extremely gassed out with the fact that his opponent was couldn't stand up and he still couldn't finish him. He's got weak takedown defense. He's got no scramble game. Diego Herzog, that was the name of the guy, had his back several times, had it mounted several times. So like, even though this guy has a grappling background, he trains under the Diaz brothers, he's he's not a jiu-jitsu whiz. This is one of the biggest mismatches in recent UFC history. I think Selmsberger knocks him unconscious in the very first round. And, you know, I'm going to say he goes vicious high kick, too. Like, I'm going to pick the shot. Uh, <laughs> kick him in the body. Next shot goes to the head. Knock him out. Mirko Krokop style. We now head to the uh, middleweight division and a matchup between Nick Maximov and Cody Brundage. Uh, Maximov, the 23-year-old, again, uh, Nick Diaz protege, fighting out of Chico, California, is a perfect 6-0 in his young mixed martial arts career. Uh, this will be his UFC debut, but he appeared last November on Dana White's Contender Series. 
I even forget who he was supposed to fight, but there was a last minute replacement and he ended up fighting uh, Oscar Coda, who's a just local heavyweight. What we learned about him is that, yep, he can out wrestle a heavyweight if it's not a very good heavyweight. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, this is his UFC debut. He had been scheduled to take on Carl Roberson. Roberson was forced to withdraw due to illness that uh, Roberson himself later revealed was due to just a really, really bad weight cut. And uh, even though it was Wednesday of fight week, in steps uh, Brundage. Brundage is a veteran of Dana White's Contender Series who lost in his appearance last uh, year, but had been scheduled to appear on the Contender Series again in about two weeks. Instead, he gets the direct call up to the big show on just day's notice. Uh, Brundage, who, if uh, the name sounds familiar to you, it is because he is the spouse of uh, professional MMA fighter Amanda Bobby Brundage. <laughs> A uh, 27-year-old out of Michigan, fighting out of Factory X. He is 6-1 uh, and one overall. That lone loss was his Dana White's Contender Series appearance last September, where he got knocked out in the first round by William Knight, who, of course, is our favorite stack of bowling balls in the UFC uh, right now. Uh, he came back from that with a win in LFA this February and uh, will now step into the Octagon for his debut as well. Uh Odds on this one, Maximov, I mean, they're all over the place because the fight was announced within the last six hours or so. But uh, as of right now, Maximov is out there around a, a two-to-one favorite. Watch for that to fluctuate wildly throughout fight week. Uh, I will give you a little peek through the fourth wall or behind the curtain or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Keith found out about this fight 15 minutes ago. I found out about it an hour or, or two ago. So while we are individually at least somewhat familiar with both Brundage and Maximov, this is more or less us winging it, or especially like it's just winging it based on what I know about them and what I've seen of them fighting other people. Uh, the thing about them is uh, both of them are wrestlers slash grapplers by preference. Uh, both of them are former college wrestlers. Uh, Maximov, uh, a more credentialed one, but both of them have that experience. And more importantly, uh, in their actual MMA careers, they, they have fought to that expectation. Um, Brundage, I, I would feel a lot better and a lot more, I, I would feel that this fight, you know, would be a lot more balanced if Brundage were coming in on a full fight camp or even just like two weeks notice because uh, Brundage is a big dude. He looks like a guy who probably has a substantial weight cut to get to 185 pounds. Now, he was already in camp. Again, you know, he was planning to appear on the Contender Series the first or second weekend in October. But nonetheless, you know, he might have been, you know, 205 pounds, 210 pounds when he got a call earlier today. And now he's going to need to cut all that uh, water weight by Friday. And again, this is on the assumption that it takes place at at middleweight, uh, we haven't heard any word of there being like an emergency catch weight or contract weight or anything. But what that means to me is, one, uh, Brundage is, uh, he's probably likely to get tired faster. And in a, in a fight where both guys probably wanna get it to the ground or both guys are most comfortable conducting a fight on the ground, that spells bad news for uh, Brundage as the fight goes on. You know, I could very easily see uh, Maximov, you know, not doing so well in the in the early going and just taking over as Brundage's gas tank uh, bottoms out. Uh, Maximov, uh, you know, very good wrestler. 
We have them listed at 5'11 in the Sure Dog Fight Finder. I saw him on the Contender Series, and I've seen you know some footage of his earlier fights. I mean, luckily, they've been in like LFA, King of the Cage, where you can get video. He looks shorter than that to me. I will be interested to see those two guys toe-to-toe, but he's a short, stocky, like broadly built guy. Um, very good uh, wrestler and a good top position grappler. He's one of those wrestlers that just seems to have instinctively picked up on that really quickly that, okay, I can bring guys down. I can bring them down forcefully. And if I'm smart, I can kind of land in an advantageous position, start to advance position from there and punch him in the head. Uh, you know, very, very much the thing that made uh, early Chris Weidman stand out in like his first four or five fights, just, you know, took over very instinctively as a grappler. I'm very high on him as a prospect. He's getting the call up now again, because of the Nick Diaz uh, connection, most likely, but he's a guy who probably would have ended up in the UFC or at least on the contender series again within the next calendar year. Uh, because it's a short notice fight, I am going to pick Maximov here to to win. He's been preparing uh, for this fight, and uh, all else being equal, uh, again, I, I expect he might be able to, to take over the fight uh, if it goes past about the middle of the second round. So give me Maximov by decision, but it's not a super confident pick. Yeah, so everything you said, I kind of agree with. So, you know, we pride ourselves on, on watching film and I've watched film on both these guys. But as <laughs> you were telling me, like, hey, we got 13 fights. I was like, what? I thought we had 12. Uh, we watch so so much film on fighters. Unless I have the notes right in front of me, I forget things about fighters. Like I I forget things, so I am kind of winging it. I remember them both being good wrestlers. I know that Maximov does a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitions. Now the reason why you'd be like, well, why don't you have the Maximov notes in front of you? Well, one of the Carl Roberson one was uh, canceled. I kind of put his notes to the side, so I know where they are right now. Um, <laughs> And and Brundage, I wasn't expecting to see him right now. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's two guys who want to get to the fight to the ground. To, you know, I like that Maximo does a lot of business competitions, but it just simply comes down to the same thing you said, like a weight cut. If he if if this was a striking mat battle, then I wouldn't care as much about the weight cutting. And 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 as far as I know, maybe Brundage is right on. Like maybe Brundage is walking around at one ninety right now. Like who knows? Or maybe it's up at two hundred five. Who knows? So I'll say this, and I've never, ever done this before. If this fight's at 185, I'm taking Maximoff. But if we find out, and like this news just broke, that A, it's at 205, or it's a 195 catch rate or something like that, then I'm going to take Brenda. So uh, not the best analysis, but that's my picks. Outstanding. There we go. We have a conditional pick from Keith, which I think is completely excusable given the circumstances. The UFC 266 prelims continue in the lightweight division, where it is a intriguing prospect matchup between Uros Medic and Jalen Turner. Medic, the 28-year-old Alaskan, is a perfect 7-0 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 1-0 since joining the UFC out of uh, last year's season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, on the Contender Series last August, he knocked out Mikey Gonzalez in the first round to punch his ticket to the UFC. He made his debut this past March in uh, at UFC 259, where he scored another first-round knockout, this time over Alon Cruz. He'll be taking on Turner, the man who goes by the Tarantula, 26-year-old out of uh, Southern California, is 10-5 and 5 overall, 
He is three and two in the UFC. Uh, although, in fairness to him, he's three and one in his actual lightweight division. He made a short notice debut at welterweight against Vicente Luque, which I think is about as excusable as it gets, uh, you know, for a, a debut UFC fighter. Uh, but yes, three and one at lightweight. He defeated Callum Potter, lost a decision to Matt Frivola uh, all the way back uh, April of 2019, and since then uh, rattled off two wins in 2020 over Josh Kulabau and Brock Weaver. Uh, and this is his first time back in the cage in just over a year. Odds on this one are very close. Medich is uh, minus 125 or so as the slight favorite. Turner, you can get him at even money or even plus 103, plus 105 or so as the very slight underdog. Keith, it's two big, talented, promising lightweights. Uh, who have you got and how? Yeah, I, I noticed that's something you stress is that these are lightweights. It's, 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 <laughs> you see these guys, it's definitely shocking, especially Jalen Turner. Uh, I mean, he's extremely long and lengthy. I mean, he's six foot three, 75 inch reach. Like you mentioning that he fought Vicente Luque, like I, I forgot that he's a lightweight. <laughs> like this guy's massive. Um, on the feet, he's a very composed striker. Uh, obviously, he's best from, you know, outside range where he's got, you know, using a 75 inch uh, reach. Good snap on his shots, but I like that he had, he conserves his energy. He's not, uh, he's not unloading everything. He's just touching, just touching, waiting for the openings. And then he throws power shots when there is an openings. And he has a serious power. I mean, he's based on his size alone, he's going to get some really good whip. I love his kicks to the body. He throws high kicks so easily, obviously. I love his front kick. He he throws the front kick a lot. It's like one of his best weapons. He'll come to the body with a keep keep kick, and then also come all the way up to like a face. Uh, he can be sucking into some firefights in the pocket, which is not a good idea for someone who's as big because when a guy gets inside of him, the chin is obviously a big target. Being that when he's taller, uh, and I'm a little worried about his chin though. He's been knocked out three times already in his career. He's also a terrible wrestler. His takedown defense is pretty much non-existent. He struggles to get back up. And that's because he's decent jiu-jitsu player. Like he throws up subs from his back. Triangle's kind of his specialty, but he, if he doesn't get the sub, he, he wastes a lot of time uh, on his back. Now move over to uh, Medish. He's also a very large, lightweight. Not as big as Turner, but he's still six one. He has a seventy-one inch reach advantage. That many guys in the division that's going to be bigger than him. So he's very long and lengthy. He's a southpaw. He's He's not a great athlete, but he makes up with it by having pure aggression. Like there's just certain fighters when they come out like a berserker, like um, a guy we're going to see later on, Marab Devajlavili, like Ian Kutalaba, like it, you're hard to control someone like that. Uh, he's a kickboxer with a lot of kickboxing experience. He's very accurate. He's aggressive. He, I mean, his his last fight against Alan Cruz, that was a fight that we were both on the fence for, and he just bum rushed him and took him out quick and looked really impressive. Throws tons of kicks. I like, and I said this last time, I want to say it again. I like that he mixes up. Most fighters, they set up, they throw punches and then set up the kicks. This guy actually throws a lot of kicks and then finishes with punches. So he and he almost he uses range similar to, and I, I know I always use this guy as an example, but I just like it. A, a, a Tim Means, where he actually the height he actually likes inside, and that's what this guy does. Like he'll 
throw kicks and follow in those long kicks into his punches where he lands shot. Uh, body kicks are a specialty. You go back to his Mikey Rolls fight on Contender Series, take him out with the with the body kicks. Uh, he'll throw out spinning attacks. I think we saw that in his. Uh, I think he threw a spinning attack in his debut. If not, we've seen him before. He's got I'd say plus power. Like he's not a huge cracker, but he he's definitely uh, touches you. He can put you out. Takedown defense has been an issue in the past on the regional scene. Um, he, he also, very similar to Jalen Turner, where he likes to lay on his back instead of scrambling to his feet. Uh, but he also has subs on his back. He's more of a, like, he attacks the legs. He likes knee bars, heel hooks, those kind of things. And I, I want to say this is not a weakness, but it's a question, is is his cardio, because he finishes people so fast that it's just a question mark. I'm not saying it's a weakness. We just It's an, it's an unknown. So as far as prediction goes, this fight is a tough one because both guys are very similar. Uh, both guys are very good on the feet. They're probably a little weaker on the ground. And I kind of like both of them. I kind of wish they were. I wish they weren't facing each other. I wish they were facing two other guys, and I'd probably pick both of them. But I'm going to go with Medish. His aggression could tire, could either tire him out and backfire on him, or he could just bum rush and, and finish Turner off. I'm going to say he gets it done. And honestly, I, you know what? Between his power and his aggression and, and Turner's chin, uh, I'm I'm gonna say Medish gets it done. I almost picked first round knockout. That's what I have in my in my notes. But I'm actually going to go with second round. Give me Medish by second round knockout. I I love your breakdown there, and I agree with basically every note of it. Uh, I I had the same question marks uh, hanging over Medish as you did ahead of his UFC debut because I looked at a guy, looked at his fights on because uh, all of his fights before the Contender Series were in AFC Alaska Fighting Championship. The great thing about AFC is that they're on Fight Pass, so you can see anything you want to see, fighter coming from Alaska, you can go see it. The bad thing is that, I mean, he was fighting at welterweight and had a bunch of really early finishes. Uh, uh, again, uh, because of that just incredible aggression that you pointed out. And at the AFC level, he, I mean, he did present as a plus athlete. But my thought was, okay, He's cutting the lightweight and he's moving to UFC level fighter. I mean, he fought at lightweight on the contender series as well, but uh, you know, he's cutting the lightweight after an early career at welterweight coming to fight UFC level fighters. And I actually picked Alon Cruz uh, to, to beat him, not because I thought Cruz was a better fighter and certainly not that he had a higher ceiling, but just as more of a known quantity, Medich just seemed like the kind of prospect who's going to drop one some point early in his UFC run, just kind of getting his feet wet. I was dead wrong. He destroyed Cruz. Now, I know that Medich is now uh, identifying with King's MMA. I don't know whether he's there full time or he is, you know, like spending his time at Anchorage BJJ and then just doing like the at tail ends of his fight camps at King's. But I do know that if I pick against Medich, Anchorage BJJ will come after me again. Look, that's not going to be an issue this time. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I was thinking it. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> Dude. I, I love it. One, one, I love that they listen to the show. Two, I, I love that they've got their fighters' backs like that. You know, like that, I, they're nothing but admirable. Like, I'm, I'm happy to have been proven wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm with you here. I'm, I'm high on both these guys' as prospects, but I'm a, I'm a little higher on Medich is, uh, in terms of just overall ceiling. And I think in terms of a style matchup, they have a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses, but I think Medich will be able to leverage those against Turner and the opposite is not true. Like, I I strongly suspect that this fight is going to end with Medich taking Turner down 
and pounding him out on the ground. And I don't, Good. even though Medic's takedown defense isn't great, I I don't see the opposite ever happening. Yeah, I agree. Um, I so, yeah, so even though I don't think Medic is like a 10 times better fighter than Turner, I think he's going to make it look that way just because of the matchup. Like, I have him by an emphatic stoppage as well. You took second round. I'm just going to go ahead with first round. He's going to come out That's like it. a house on fire. They're going to just wail away at, at each other. I think Medic will probably get a little bit the better of it on the feet. Uh, I don't think he'll have trouble navigating the the reach advantage of Turner and maybe get sloppy. Medic is the one who takes it down to the ground, advances position, and just pounds him out. Yeah, and, and you mentioned going to King's MMA. I mean, we saw what just happened to Neiman Gracie. I'm not saying that's all King's MMA, but <laughs> Neiman Gracie looked really good. He just recently went to King's MMA. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think you and I have had the conversation before, you know, like what's more Hall of Fame worthy, like Shogun's pride career, Shogun's UFC career. You can do the same thing. Like what's what's greater and more important, like Shootbox, Rafael Cordero or Kings, Rafael Cordero, because the things he's done like yeah. there yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah. there are not many coaches who were elite top of the sport coaches in 1998 and still are in 2021. It is yeah. insane how he has developed along with the sport. I mean, even like a guy like Greg Jackson was more like later 2002-ish, three-ish. And yeah, the mean, who, real glory days at Jackson's were over by like 2015. Yeah, I'd say, um, uh, I can't think of his name, AKA, he's been around for a long time. Javier, um, Javier Mendez. He's been around yeah. for really, I mean, he was, he was with Frank Shamrock, mm -hmm. you know, 98, 99. Yeah. I mean, wasn't he yeah, coaching when Bob Cook was still a fighter? We named, we, we named two guys. How many, yeah. how many guys are there? I mean, I'm sure there's probably an obvious one we're not thinking of, but yeah. Yeah, but unbelievable. Like guys back, sorry. We now head over to the flyweight division for the first of three remaining women's matchups on the card. Uh, all four of the scheduled ones had been in the flyweight division. There are three left. This is the first of them. It is Roxanne Mataferi versus Tyla Santos. Mataferi, the 38-year-old... Las Vegas native by way of Japan, by way of Delaware. She, she's been everywhere, man. She is 25 and 18 overall. She is four and six uh, across two different stints with the UFC. Uh, she first came to the UFC through the 18th season of The Ultimate Fighter, uh, lost at the finale, went back out to Invicta and a couple of other promotions for a couple of years, came back through the 26th season of The Ultimate Fighter, the one that was to inaugurate the flyweight division, and uh, while she did lose the inaugural strawweight title fight to Nico Montano, uh, she has stuck with the promotion ever since then and put together a four and five run that's, I mean, even though it sounds kind of pedestrian on paper, reflects a, a bit of a late career renaissance for someone that many people might not have expected to be a, a relevant fighter, you know, as, as she pushes 40. Uh, she has alternated wins and losses throughout that, so she... Uh, fought most recently in January at UFC on ESPN, Chiesa versus Magni, where she dropped a unanimous decision to Viviani Araujo. Before that, she beat uh, Andrea Lee back last September. She'll be taking on uh, Santos, the 28-year-old Brazilian, so a full decade younger, is 17-1. and one. Uh, She is 2-1 and one since joining the UFC out of uh, the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. 
She lost her debut to Mara Romero Barella by uh, split decision. Uh, Keith is shaking his head at that one because it was kind of a stinky decision. I'm not shaking my head that it, she lost a split decision, like wh- whether you agree with it. I'm just saying, like, wow, how did she lose to her? Like, sh- she's much better. That's why I was shaking. That was like that weird yeah. loss. Yeah. Sorry, she, carry on. She, she is much better than that and has shown it by bouncing back and beating two good, solid UFC flyweights in Molly McCann and uh, Jillian Robertson, whom she beat at UFC Fight Night 183 back last December, which was her most recent uh, appearance. Uh, Santos is a substantial favorite here. She is minus 400. Modafferi around minus three, or sorry, plus 325 or plus 330 uh, as the big underdog. Uh, Keith, Roxanne Modafferi has defied the prognosticators. She has defied Father Time. She, leg injury or not, has one of the biggest upsets in modern UFC history. By the pattern of alternating wins and losses, she's due for a win this Saturday. <laughs> Does she get it? Well, I'll say this. Like, when is Vegas going to learn? Like, don't count Roxanne Matafari out. Like, we've seen her be a huge underdog before and pull up these upsets. I'm not saying she should be the favorite, but there's two or three female fighters in the world that should be four to one favorites over Roxanne Matafari. Santos ain't one of them. Modafferi, um, so I'll, I'll give a little behind the scenes. I obviously have ongoing list of fighters. I have like a database I have where I write when I see notes. I write them down. I update them. Always trying to update. And then right before I try to watch, I try to reread my last notes, and then I rewatch fights and I kind of add what I've seen new, what maybe they haven't done in a while. Just kind of an idea. Roxy Montefiore is one of these ones that I don't do that anymore. Like, she's been fighting since 2003. She's not adding anything to her game. She's only declining in her game. Like, she's going to lose, like, attributes I give her. She's not going to gain them. That said, like, we're talking about Robbie Lawler versus uh, Nick Diaz, that their rematch. And I apologize when Nick has been out of the sport for so long. I know I'm going to call him Nate sometime tonight. I, I, I apologize just because... Let's be it. Nick hasn't fought forever. Nate was is one of the biggest stars in the history of sport, some of the biggest, most important fights ever. Anyways, side note. We keep talking about like how crazy it is for these guys to rematch 17 years later. Roxanne Montefiore was fighting before that match. And I don't think people realize how incredible female fighters are fighting back in 2003. MMA was rare back then. Female MMA was even rarer. So she's been fighting for a really long time. I just think she needs to get that credit. In 2003, I could name you every promotion in North America that even put on women's fights because there were like four of them. That's it. Uh, yeah, Jeff Osborne was doing it. Yeah, like hook and sh- like Jeff Osborne's hook and shoot. shoot. Was, yeah. yeah, there were a few others, you know. Yeah. Jeff Osborne like started women's MMA pretty much. Uh, certainly in, in the Western Hemisphere, he did. Pretty yeah, sure. I'm pretty sure he's credited with it. But anyways, back back to Roxanne Montefiore. You know what she's getting. Like, she's not a good athlete. Like, she's not going to be a good athlete. She's she's a very high-output striker, very awkward style. Oh, oh, the whole reason I gave you that backstory is I'm reading my notes exa- almost exactly from the last time. I, that's my whole point. It's like, I changed my notes. I haven't changed my notes on Roxanne Montefiore in, like, her last three fights. And two years from now, we're talking about Roxanne Montefiore. I want to read the same notes again. <laughs> she just, like, go back and just hit, like, which like flashback to the last time I said it. Uh, and then I'll be a couple of years younger. So, you know, maybe look a little bit better. Um, anyways, so not a good athlete. She's a high output striker. 
very awkward style, herky jerky, kind of just blitzes forward, throwing punches, not much power in her shots at all, has some huge holes defensively. One is that she's just slow. Uh, second, no head movement, but she wants to close the distance. She wants to get to the clinch where she can just grind out minutes and win rounds, uh, ultimately win rounds and then win the fight. Good in plum clinch due to her height. She's usually a taller fighter. She uses that to her advantage. She will look for takedown. She's like really, she's not a powerful wrestler, but she fi- she's crafty enough. She finds a way to get the fight to the ground, even if it's just like uh, just starting to scramble and she figures out she's got to win on top. On top, solid ground and pound. She is a submission threat for both top and bottom. She's a very weak defensive wrestler, though. Um, but she has tons of heart. No matter how this fight goes, no matter how much she's losing, She's going to, in any fight, she's just going to keep coming throughout the entire fight, take a beating, and, and just make it competitive. Now, move on to Santos. We talked about her having the loss for Barella. And then the last the, the last time we broke her down when she was going against Julian Robson and said, well, she looked like crap against Barella. She looked awesome against Molly McCann. Who is she? Well, after taking out a tough fighter like Julian Robson, I think we could say she's the good version. Like the, the Barella fight is the outlier, not the McCann fight. She's a very good striker. She just marches down her opponents. She's a builder, and I, you know how much Ben knows how much I love builders. Builders, a perfect example. I always think of uh, a Max Holloway is a guy who she, her confidence builds, her output builds, and as a fight goes on, you're gonna see more and more pressure with her striking. Really, some nice snaps. I don't like that she moves straight back on the center line when she's getting blitzed. And I also don't like that she stands up high, and that's due to a Muay Thai style. Muay Thai fighters naturally stand a little higher, and they kind of hide behind their, their big gloves. But the good thing about a Muay Thai fighter is a lot of knees up the middle because they get in those clinch positions where they kind of have to only throw knees, step in knees, good kicks. I love that she uh, throws a front kick to the body. Our, her Muay Thai background makes her very strong in the in the clinch. Good knees in the clinch when she's pressed against the cage. She will also drop down from the clinch for takedowns. We saw that uh, in her last two fights. Solid body lock takedowns also. Good back takes on top. She looks to advance position. She's actually a submission threat herself. And she showed in her last fight that she can hang on the ground with one of the better pure grapplers in the women's division in Jillian Robinson. So prediction, I'm going with Santos. I think she's just too fast, too strong for Montefiore. I expect Montefiore to try everything to get to the fight the ground. I think she either gets her takedown stuffed or she finds herself on her own back with Santos on her. Santos actually winning the exchanges. On the feet, though, Santos just batters her. Montefiore is so durable that she will make it to the final bell. I don't will see a stoppage. But I say Santos wins, and it's an absolutely lopsided decision. After I just said that she shouldn't be a 4-1 to one favorite, Put it at like three and a half to one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I love your kind of historical uh, you know journey through through Montefiore's uh, uh, development there. <sighs> You're right, and the the thing is, Montefiore is still a, a sneaky upset uh, risk to a certain kind of fighter. Like you, you mentioned that she probably shouldn't be a four to one underdog to anybody. But if there is one mold of fighter that is the hardest for Mata Ferry to to perform well against, it is the Tyler Santos mold. If you look at Mata Ferry's losses, you know, in this last UFC run, except for Lauren Murphy, they are all grapplers who probably aren't as technically advanced as she is, 
but they're younger, more physically strong, and more athletic. Nico Montano, Sajara Eubanks, Viviana Arojo, Jennifer Maya, Jennifer Maya twice if you want to count it. They, they all come from that same mold. Where in maybe in a straight grappling competition, it'd be a more interesting thing, but they're just too big, too strong, too fast for her. And when another they can good mix example, in, another good example is Sajara Eubanks on the Ultimate Fighter. That's another yes, Sajara Eubanks twice. Like those women are just stylistic nightmares for Roxanne Mataferi. Would have been at any point in her career, but especially now. And Tyler Santos is absolutely in that mold. Like I'm sure she's not as advanced. A, a grappler in a strict sense as Montefiore is like uh I mean Montefiore got her her BJJ black belt like shockingly recently like I think she was I'm surprised she's not like a Caesar Gracie student because she must have been like the most overqualified brown belt like of all time uh <laughs> she was but, Nagaro, if she was a Nagara student she would have got it yeah. 15 years ago <laughs> uh but Tyler Santos uh any and I I really tapped the brakes on her when she entered the UFC and especially obviously after the Barella fight because she came up, she's an Ast you know, she's an Astra fight team representative. A lot of them come up through Aspera FC. Thing about Aspera FC is it's one of Brazil's eh, you know, medium to large regional promotions. It is a very good uh, regional promotion unless you come from Astra fight team, in which case it is a a conveyor belt of cans to build up your record. Like I don't normally rec recommend that uh, our viewers go to my competition, but even as uh, SureDog senior editor, go look at Tyler Santos's record in topology because then you can scroll down to see what her opponent's records were at the time. And I mean, she was like 13 and 0, 14 and 0 fighting women who were 0 and 2 debuting. You know, it, it was embarrassing. And when that kind of fighter gets to the next level, I'm like, ah. Eh. I, I bet you're I bet you're gonna get your medicine. And when she lost a crummy fight to a crummy fighter in Barella, I was like, okay, well, th this is this hype train's over. I was wrong. She she has turned out to be at the very least a UFC level flyweight, and who knows what the ceiling is. She's young, and she adjusted to the speed and and the like the kind of level of competition she was going to have to take on pretty quickly because she's looked good against McCann and Robertson. She is absolutely the type of opponent that's going to be poison for Mataferi. I expect this to look like the Araujo fight or the Maya fight where Mataferi puts on a gutsy performance, but if her opponent wants on the feet, they're stuck on the feet. If the opponent wants to take Mataferi down, they'll be able to and she'll survive. She'll probably I'll probably give her a close call at some point in the fight. I, I'll predict it. Mataferi locks on a Kimura and like has her opponent, it has Santos in a whole lot of trouble for about 30 seconds at some point in this fight. Santos gets out resumes advancing position and like mashing her with elbows on her way to winning all three rounds. I, I've got Tyler Santos big in this one. Kind of a bummer just because Modafferi is, I mean, it's not reflected when you look at her record, you know, I think she's like 25 and 18 or something, but she's about as close to like a, a living legend as this sport has going on. Uh, but it's getting very close to the end for her. And Tyler Santos is the new breed. The UFC 266 prelims continue on with the first of two heavyweight matchups on the card. It is Shamil Abdurakhimov versus Chris Dacus. Abdurakhimov, the 40-year-old Russian, is 20-5 and five overall. He is 5-2 and two in the UFC. Uh, fought most recently all the way back in September of 2019, where he lost to Curtis Blades, who appears further up the card, via second-round uh, TKO uh, ground and pound. 
He'll be taking on Dacus. The Philly police officer slash fighter is 31 years old, 11 and three overall, a perfect three and zero since uh, joining the UFC out of uh, CFFC. He defeated Parker Porter in his UFC debut, then went on to beat Rodrigo Natimento last October at UFC Fight Night Moraes versus Sanhagen. And uh, in his most recent appearance it, back in February at UFC Fight Night Blades versus Lewis, he got a first round uh, TKO of Alexei Olenek. Uh, having thus proven he can beat up 40 year old Russians, he takes on a 40 year old Russian and he is a two to one favorite. Uh, actually, even more, uh, he's uh, minus 215 right now. He can get Abdurakimov uh, Abdur around plus 180 as the underdog. Uh, Keith? When Shamil Abdurakimov last fought two years ago, I mean, he, on the optics and on who he beat and who beat him, you could make an argument that he was a borderline top 15 guy. The question now is, I mean, he's been out with injuries for two years, even without injuries, even at heavyweight, most people don't get better between 38 and 40. Uh, and meanwhile, Chris Dawkins, speaking only for myself, but also, you know, a lot of other people I've talked to, has been a pleasant surprise in, in the UFC. I mean, I did not see him winning his first three fights in such an emphatic manner. Uh, he seems to be improving, uh, you know, he, not just in terms of skills, but physically. Like, he, you can't make, like, the cop donut jokes about him anymore, really. But, like... You tell me this cop donut jokes, Ben? The, and what he, are you saying? Explain those. <laughs> And, I mean, he, he was the walking punchline of that when he fought Parker Porter two years ago, two and a half years ago. I, you know, he's probably lost 15 pounds, but he's built muscle while he's at it. Like, he has transformed himself. Uh, is this a case of two fighters meeting in the middle from opposite directions in terms of their, their competitive worth? Uh, or has Doc has already passed him? Who wins this? Uh, so you just said that. Abdurak Himov, and I know I'm I'm struggling with the name. I figure if I say it really fast, you can't tell I messed it up. Um, you said he was borderline top fifteen. Like I think he was clearly was top fifteen. Not, not just borderline. Um, yeah, I mean, just side note: his last three UFC wins were against Martin Tybura uh, and Andre Arlovsky, which in 2018, I mean, it's a good win. Yeah, yeah, Chase Sherman. You know, yeah. like which which has aged pretty well. You know, not great, but aged okay. Yeah. And ha had only lost. To Curtis Blades, Derek Lewis, and your current Bellator heavyweight champ Timothy Johnson. That's yeah. it. Yeah, and you think about like two years ago, you made, you said about where Abdurakhimov. I'm, I'm struggling with that one, but where Dawkins was two years ago, like Dawkins was a was you mentioned was like a toss up, like a pick 'em fight with Parker Porter, which mm -hmm. which actually surprisingly has aged well too. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so, you know, Shamil's 40 years old. As you mentioned, he hasn't fought in two years. Even though he had good wins, like you said, I was never really impressed with him. Like, I, I, I was doing tape study of him, and I just wrote down this question: like, what is he really good at? And I mean, he's really big for a guy who's big. He has, I would say, deceivingly good movement and deceivingly light on his feet. Like, that's not what you think when you see him. He has long strikes. Uh, he, but he tends to throw single shots. Not a lot of combination striker. Uh, does does love his step back uppercut. That's actually like a, uh, which is a good way to get yourself knocked out. But it's also a sneaky punch if you're not expecting it. Um, uh, he'll he'll grind you against the cage. He likes to chest to chest, just wear you out. 
Uh, I think he showed okay get-up game against Curtis Blades in his last fight until Curtis Blades just slowed you down. Um, he's more of an offensive wrestler. Like he'll like to get a takedown, go back to like the Derek Lewis fight. Uh, he slowed down in, in fights before. Uh, the perfect example is Derek Lewis, also Curtis Blades. And he has four career subs on his record, but I don't think anybody would call him as like a submission threat. I don't think any, nobody expects Dawkins to get submitted by him. Now, Dawkins, he's a very technically sound fighter. He's an accurate striker. He has fast hands. He just has an overall speed advantage over most heavyweights, especially the aging ones, like the you know the 40-year-olds. He's got good power. Like That was something that, for a heavyweight, he was not known as a big cracker heading into the UFC. He's got three first-round knockouts since he's come to the UFC so far. For him, he's three for three with first-round knockouts. So like that is gone. Like Now you have to respect his power. He's added kicks to his game since then. Uh, surprisingly, a high kick. Uh, one of the major problems, and this is going back to Parker Porter, I haven't seen the other ones, but I, I haven't seen, I'm not sure if he fixed it yet, is that he does back straight up. Like Parker Porter was able to back him up sometimes, uh, even though that fight didn't last long. But uh, he's a good clinch striker if you're getting close. Uh, knees and elbows, has like a mean streak to him. And he's a very underrated grappler. Like, He's a person that just do black belt. He doesn't ha- have any submissions on his record, but I've seen him on the radio scene. Like he just wins by being on top, working on top. So as a prediction, you said like where have they have they crossed? Have have they met? You know, thinking about the two escalators. Like I think they crossed, and I think they crossed like two years ago. I like Doc. I think Docus is already passing by far. I like Docus big in this fight. I think he's way too fast for Shamil. I see him using his movement to avoid. You know, being pressed against the cage, and I think he just outworks him with his boxing. Abdul Rahimov has faded in the third round. I think he fades trying to chase down Dawkins, and Dawkins just absolutely knocks him out cold. Uh, I'm gonna like eventually not think Dawkins is gonna win. As I said this last time, he's a police officer. I'm a police officer. I'm not gonna pick against a police officer, guys. So, but I will do this because our listeners actually care about who we pick. When I think Doc is going to lose, I'll make it pretty obvious that I think Doc is going to lose and then still pick him. Uh, this is not the case. Like, I think Doc is smashes after him off. Uh, I think this would be another one where everyone's saying, as we're doing the recap and saying, this guy needs a top 10 guy. And I think that's what's going to happen. This could be another breakout performance for him. Awesome. Uh, I am a little more cautious about this one because – uh, Abdurak Kimov, as, as you pointed out, like even during his, I will call it prime, you know, uh, his earlier UFC run, uh, not great at everything, but solid everywhere and had, you know, a good ability to kind of stick a fight in the mud and and not, you know, like really let it get out of second gear. Uh, he he had been known to slow down late in fights, but that's a question mark hanging over Dawkins for me, frankly. I mean, the guy's been out of the second round once in his entire career it was like six years ago uh his ufc fights have all been first round tkos and while the i mean the parker porter fight that was a grueling one round like it was two 260 pound guys fighting at a pace that if that thing made it out of the first round it was about to become one of the worst fights in ufc history but instead it was a a really fun round the other two i mean they've been over in like under a minute and under two minutes respectively i would like to know what chris Dawkins looks like in the middle of the second round of a ufc heavyweight fight I think we're probably going to uh, be able to find that out in this fight. If Abdurakimov has not completely fallen off a cliff, if he resembles even the guy that got uh, 
stomped out by by Blades two years ago. I think he's the toughest test of Dawkus's career so far, easily over Nascimento, who, I mean, looks like Nascimento's probably going to win some fights here and there, uh, and definitely over Alenik. By the time Dawkus fought Alenik, the, like, the Cinderella story was over, and he was just fighting a 43-year-old guy who had, like, one weapon and a shot chin. Like, of, of course, Dawkus destroyed him. This is a this is a test, and like I say, if uh, I'm I'm going with Dawkus as well, and I'm going to go with Dawkus by finish. But if this gets to midway through the the second round, and even if Dawkus won the first round, even if he hurt Abdurakimov, I, I think we're going to learn a lot of. Well, we're going to definitely learn a lot about Abdurakimov either way, since he's a complete question mark right now. But we're going to learn a lot about Dawkus as well, and I I feel kind of top ten potential in in Dawkus. Uh, it, but you know this this is a good test, and even if he loses this fight, I, I still feel top ten potential in him. But I, I have Dawkins. Give me Dawkins by second round TKO, and even though he's a little on the older edge of the kind of new youth movement in the UFC heavyweight division, I completely count him in with them just because of the improvements he's making from fight to fight. Like he's a little older than you know you're, you know, uh, he's a little older than Cyril Gon, uh, but but he's like Cyril Gon is who he is and is just kind of sharpening those tools, whereas Dawkins just seems to be transforming. So uh, give me a, make mine uh, Dawkins as well. Uh, second round TKO. We now move on to the scheduled lightweight matchup between Dan Hooker and Nasrad Hakparast. Uh, Hooker, the 31-year-old New Zealander, is 20 and 10 overall. He is 10 and 6 in the UFC. Uh, that uh, number sounds a lot more impressive when you realize that he is seven and three since moving up to lightweight. He is, however, on a two-fight losing streak, uh, his first in the UFC, having dropped a unanimous decision to Dustin Poirier last June and then uh, come back in January at UFC 257 and gotten knocked out in half a round by Michael Chandler in what ended up being a title eliminator for Chandler. Uh, he will look to turn that streak around against Hakparast, the 26-year-old uh, Afghanistani by way of Germany, by way of Canada, I think. Like, no wonder there are visa issues getting these guys into the country. Anyway, uh, he is 13-3 and three overall. He's 5-2 and two in the UFC. Uh, he is on a two-fight winning streak, uh, having beaten Alex Munoz last August and then this March at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad took a unanimous decision over Rafa Garcia. Odds on this one are very close. Uh, Hooker currently stands at minus 140 as the slight favorite. Hak Parast at plus 120 as uh, just the slight underdog. Uh, as I alluded, um, Dan Hooker has been having uh, visa issues getting into the country. And as of at least Wednesday morning of fight week, neither man was in the United States yet. But we are going to go ahead and treat and talk about this fight uh, as if it's happening this Saturday. And if it doesn't happen this Saturday, I will take this exact recorded capsule and push it a week or two down the road. And just will Keith and I will save 10 or 12 minutes uh, that week. So it'll be great. Uh, Keith, this is one of the highest level fights ever used as a prelim headliner yeah. that I can remember in UFC history. I mean, both of these guys are top 10 talents and Hooker arguably top five, even though he's on a two fight losing streak, it's against two of the top three or four guys in the division. Sure. Um, who do you like in this one? Yeah, we were just talking off air and we talked about Misha Tate just got pulled from her fight for COVID. There's a very good chance that if these girls don't, these two guys don't arrive today, 
I could see this about easily moving into that main event slot for a couple weeks from now. And one, because obviously it'd be much more convenient for these two guys, but also like that shows you what we were talking about, how deep this card is that we're still pretty far down on the prelims. And we have Dan Hooker fighting Nazareth Hockbrush. So got it. Hockbrush is a guy that they kind of been trying to push. And this is his big first big step up. I mean, this, as, as you said, this is a huge step up from Munoz and Garcia to Dan Hooker. Like it's that's like that's not just a small one step above. Like he was jumping uh, buildings up there. Uh, Dan Hooker is a is the guy that the, I wrote this note and I've never changed it and I would say it every single time Dan Hooker fights. I am just shocked that this guy ever made 145. Like he's a huge. Like I'm shocked he makes lightweight. Never mind how he used to make 145, uh, and and that's why you see a guy who just when he moves up in weight drastically changed because. It really is two different fighters because the damage he was doing to himself to make weight, and I've, I've heard fighters say, when I'm draining my body to make weight, my my training camp is just getting the weight down. It's not actually working on things that I need to, and that's why I've always been a big proponent of fighters moving up in weight. I, I, I really think, you know, it doesn't work for everyone, but the evidence of so many, it, I feel like it's it shows that it's worked for enough guys. On the feet, he's an accurate fighter. He uses movement really well. Uh, he did it really early in his fight against Paul Felder. He was using his, his circling movement, pulling Paul Felder into his punches, so kind of timing where Paul Felder was going to step. Because when when you're circling away and you're using good lateral movement, your opponents fall, especially if they're not cutting you off, they're following you. You know where their next step is. So you take the step back before they take the step forward. And then when you take step back, you actually throw the punch to where they're going to step in. It's called pulling the punches because you're kind of getting the best of both worlds because you're throwing the punch and they're moving into it. So it actually makes it a more powerful punch. He was trying to do it to Michael Chandler. Unfortunately, he forgot to block his chin when Michael Chandler landed a huge bomb. Uh, but he does really well keeping distance. He, he does it with his footwork. He also does it with his check left hook. It's always one thing I really liked of him. Um, he can hit while backing up if he's forced. Uh, there's very few fighters. Uh, Stevie Miocic is the guy who's always known for it. Chuck Liddell is always known for it. I thought Chuck Liddell was a little overrated. But Dan Hook is one of those guys who can really strike as he's getting backed up. Oh, Israel Assange is also another obvious pick. And, and Demetrius Johnson was good at doing everything. Uh, but he, he keeps range using his check uh, his check knees, he kind of um, almost like someone with those check hooks. He does it with knees. He does a lot with the wrestlers, guys. He thinks he's going to want to take him down. He kind of throws his knees out, just letting you know what's there. Uh, he uses his long legs to really uh, close the distance when he's throwing a strike. So it's kind of hard to really pick up his distance and his timing, like when you're his opponent. Good pop in his strikes. I don't think he gets enough credit. Um, he's not a crushing power guy, but like I said, Look at his fights against Paul Felder, Dustin Poirier. Look at the damage on the guys' faces from battling Dan Hooker. Like, I don't think Dan Hooker gets enough credit for he, – he actually reminds me of Rory McDonald, where Rory McDonald had this – and I'm talking about peak Robbie Lawler, Rory McDonald. We had these run, run of wars, and he was never like Robbie Lawler, where he was known for his big power, but he is still going to – butcher your face with his like plus power and that's what dan hucker is like he just butches you up good calf kicks go back to the al i one that's the fight that he was very successful with that uh he actually forced al i to switch stances to southpaw from the leg kicks uh to his 
because of how tall he is and how long he is, his legs are, are targets, though. Go back to the Edson Barbosa fight. Um, and the other thing, like, I'm a fan of Dan Hook, and I keep saying he doesn't get enough credit because he is a, you know, top 10 guy, but you don't, he's not in the same conversations as your Dustin Poirier's. And I understand he's lost to Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler, these guys, but he's right there. Like, if, if Dustin Poirier and Dan Hook have fought, a month from now, Dan Hooker beat Dustin Poirier. Like, I would not be shocked. Like, that's how high I think of, of Dan Hooker. Um, and one thing I wanted to say is he doesn't get enough credit with wrestling. Like, he took Dustin Poirier down four times in that fight. Um, he, he's, he, he can either just sneak in and use those long arms to get behind the legs. Or if he's in close, he has, like, this quick, nice slide by or, like, a kind of a drag that he uses against the cage where he gets behind you, just kind of gets puts a leg in and starts working. Uh, he also catch a kick if you throw a lazy kick at him and catch it. Uh, and he defends takedowns by just stretching his legs out wide, and came in, which is so good for a long fighter. And then he does those Travis Brown-like elbows. And uh, But, though, he has faded late, I guess because of his, his size. And he's actually a guy... I wouldn't hate if Dan Hooker went up to welterweight. Like, I still think that's an option that actually uh, could happen if he loses. The thing that worries me, so I said all these wonderful things about Dan Hooker. The thing that worries me is that all the damage he's taken over the years, and including being knocked out in his last fight, I mean, knocked out brutally by Michael Chandler. Uh, fights before that, you think about the war against Dustin Poirier, the war against Edson Barbosa, the war against... Uh, Paul Felder, like these all add up. Historically, he's had a really good chin. I mean, going back to Edson Barbosa, like getting destroyed and still coming. But then Chandler puts him out one shot, and I got to ask myself a question: Was it a great shot? Yeah. Is does Michael Chandler have that knockout power? Yeah, we've seen that his entire career. But is that also a byproduct of all the damage Dan Hooker's took over the year? Like, would that have put down Dan Hooker from three years ago? I don't know. So that's just – I'm not saying his chin is gone. I'm not trying to take away anything from Michael Chandler. <laughs> I'm a big Michael Chandler fan. Like, I've always been a Michael Chandler fan. But I just want to throw the idea out there. Like, if Dan Hooker gets knocked out and and then he gets knocked out of his neck, like, like it's not out of the realm of possibility that, like, he his chin could be gone. I mean, that we've seen that happen. So I just want to throw it out there. Now, Hawk Ross, Southpaw, he's a counter-striker. I love he uses feints to draw out attacks really well to leave him open. It's kind of similar to Alex Volkanovsky we have in the main event. Fast hands. He's explosive. He really whips his shots. Uh, it's funny because people say he looks like Kelvin Gaston. I mean, obviously he does. But they fight similar, too. Like, like it's not just like they look like they're boxing every guys who really whips their shots. Uh, he can be a little wild. Though and he he's got good power, uh, I love that he he closes a distance really quickly and he throws a wild. What I don't like though is he throws a wild uppercut similar to uh, Abrahamov, who we were just talking about, similar to Junior Joe Santos. It's a big power shot, especially if your opponent's backing up and pillaring. It's a great shot, but if you throw it without setting up, you're putting yourself in the danger zone. Uh, but he's he's the guy who's willing to take that risk. He's got good takedown defense. I wouldn't say it's perfect, though. Uh, I mean, going all the way back to the Marcin Hell fight, he was taken down three times. But And Alex Munoz took him down one fight in that fight. But like Alex Munoz is a very wrestle-heavy guy and be able to stop takedowns. I feel good about him. And he also got right up. Offensive wrestling, you hardly see Akbar's 
use his offensive wrestling. He more wants the box. He's purely a boxer, and he's got the hand speed. Prediction, this is a really fun matchup. As I said, I'm worried about Hooker's chin. His chin could be gone, um, and it could be the last we see of a top-notch guy. However, this is a big step up for Hawk Bruss. He's still just a boxer, while Hooker really is a complete MMA fighter where he uses all his limbs, knees, elbows. I know I've talked about this fight way longer than any fight so far. It's it's a really exciting matchup, and I'm probably wasting my time as this fight not even happened this weekend. Uh, But also, I like the the opportunity grappler of of Hooker. He's very intelligent where he knows how to win rounds. Just all those together, more tools and a few takedowns, I think that's going to get it done. So give me Hooker. Uh, in a in a decision which kind of shows Hawkbrass is the next level down. So Hooker by decision. Awesome. I will not like even bother jumping into the X's and O's of these two guys just because you, you've laid it out so beautifully, just their relative strengths and uh, vulnerabilities. Even kind of, you know, Dan Hooker's underrated like second line of weapons. Um, but in like the, just the more overarching sense, this is a huge step up for for Nazareth Hakparast, obviously. I mean, the only guy he's fought in his UFC run that's even really borderline top 15-ish guy is Drew Dober. It took one naked leg kick and Dober iced him. And, I mean, Drew Dober's a good striker, but, like, one-shot power might be the only thing he has over Dan Hooker. Like, I, Dan Hooker's probably a niftier striker overall. Meanwhile... I mean, this is uh, definitely a step back for Hooker, and it's a needed one. Like, I'm glad they're not just throwing him straight in with another top five or six guy. Uh, my only concern on Hooker's side is is letdown. If he's going to be like, man, I've been in, you know, like, m- main event fights. I was one, like, you know, freak. I'm not going to say freak like it was a fluke, but, you know, I was like one bad punch knockout away from maybe fighting for a title and now i'm on the prelims fighting a up and coming borderline top 15 guy plus i like had hell itself even getting into the country for this like where's his mind gonna be at because otherwise i don't normally throw these categories out like you do but this would be my lock of the night like i you know i feel as though the odds should be wider than they are a hack has i mean he has promise he certainly is a guy that could land just one, you know, shot on Hooker like Chandler did. You know, he has really quick hands. He has good power. I don't think he has Chandler power. Um, and for Chandler, it took a combination of Chandler's power and Hooker just getting caught blind with it, like just creating that collision. I'm certainly not betting on that to happen. And I'm not even betting on it to ha- happen at plus 130 or plus 125 or whatever whatever they're offering me uh, on Hack Parast. Um, I've got Hooker in this one big. Uh, it is just a, a three-round fight that, you know, uh, that makes me feel better ab- about Hooker because, as you pointed out, even at 155, you suspect he has quite a weight cut. Um, but give me Dan Hooker, and I'm not going to pick him to just Lance Hackparast like Dober did, but give me Hooker by a clear, like, there's levels to this three-round decision, maybe even a 10-8 round in there where Hooker just, you know, outstrikes him badly, cuts him up. And just has him like you know, uh, looking way overwhelmed. But yeah, Dan Hooker, uh, big by decision. The top bout on the eight fight prelim card of UFC 266 is a bantamweight matchup between Marlon Magic Moraes and Marab the Machine Dwalishvili. 
Bryce, the 33-year-old Brazilian, is 23-8-1 overall. Uh, he is 5-4 since joining the UFC uh, as the departing, reigning uh, World Series of Fighting Bantamweight Championship. That 5-4 record is, uh, a, it belies the fact that he has fought nothing but top 10, if not top 5 guys, basically every fight out. The four losses, Rafael Asuncao, a, a loss that he avenged emphatically, Henry Cejudo, Corey Sandhagen, and most recently, Rob Font, uh, who knocked him out in the first round at UFC Fight Night, Thompson versus Neil back last December. He is taking on uh, Dwalish Billy, the 30-year-old Georgian by way of Long Island, is 13-4 and four overall. He is 6-2 and two in the UFC, uh, stumbled out of the gate with a pair of losses, a uh, split decision, lost to Frankie Science, and then a uh, controversial Technical submission loss to Ricky Simone in his second UFC fight, where if you uh, don't remember, uh, at the end of the third round, so the very end of the fight, uh, Simone had him in a guillotine choke. Dvalish really was slow to get up once the horn sounded. Perhaps he'd been out. Who knows? But uh, the referee ruled that he had been out, and thus it was ruled a technical submission at five minutes of round three. Regardless of how you feel about that fight, he has been flawless ever since. He's gone 6-0. All by unanimous decision and has won every round of all six of those fights. He has won 18 straight rounds. Um, odds in this one, perhaps reflecting that, uh, Dwalish Billy is a substantial favorite uh, over the former title contender. He is minus 250. You can get Morais around plus 210 or so. Uh, this is one of the fights that I wrote about for my column this week, uh, just pointing out the little bit of Additional pressure that Marab is under, actually, uh, as the favored fighter, but the smaller name here. Uh, Marab Wallace really is, I mean, I know he's from Georgia, and a lot of the other guys in this category are from, you know, Russia, Chechnya, Dagestan. But he is the definition of the wrestler that nobody wants to fight. Just there's no upside. You know, he's this guy with a long, hard to pronounce name, uh, uh, you know, a bit of an accent. And not only is he going to beat you he's just going to make you look like dog shit. Uh, nobody wants like, you know, nobody, nobody wants to fight him. Uh, I, I fully believe that about this guy. And it's the grinders dilemma. Like if Marab was on a six fight winning streak in the UFC of highlight real knockouts, I assure you that he'd be like much higher on the ladder of contention and he'd be front and center of the UFC's, uh, you know, marketing efforts. But you know, when you are a grinder that nobody can stop, you're going to have to earn every step forward that you get just double. And while he's won six straight and they've all been against at least good fighters, like there's not a scrub in the bunch, there are no names there unless you count retiring John Dodson. So this is it. Marlon Moraes is not only the, uh, the best opponent of his uh, UFC run, he's by far the biggest name and... Uh, if Marab beats him, Marais is the kind of uh, name that you can build a resume for UFC Bantamweight title contention off of. You know, it, it at least puts him in the same conversation as the very few other people that have beaten Marais, all of whom are champs, ex-champs, top, you know, top five guys. If Marab loses this one, or even if he struggles mightily in a win, it gives the UFC an excuse to backburner him for who knows how many more fights. So he's under a bit of pressure here, but I think this one is tailor-made for him to win. Uh, Marais, magic, 
is the is the nickname and especially coming into the UFC out of World Series of Fighting. He was one of the guys that was the best blend of that. I am a high level fighter and I turn away all comers, but I'm also just like a savage, aggressive finisher on the feet and on the ground like. Those tools have eroded a little bit. The wars he's been in, you know, even though he's only 33, they they do seem to have slowed him a bit, but he remains a dangerous guy who's capable of finishing a, a fight pretty much in any situation, in any position. But I just don't think it's going to matter against uh, against Marab. Like Marlon Moraes, his Achilles heel has always been, uh, like he's never been a very good defensive wrestler. Uh, he's an okay offensive wrestler, and it, like he tried turning to that in the Rob Font fight when Font just was outboxing him really, really soundly, and it didn't work out for him. Uh, he's going to have a rough, rough sledding against Marab here. Marab is an underrated striker. He doesn't have a ton of, well, I don't know if he's underrated, but like we don't talk about it as much. Uh, not a ton of power, but you know, just nice, compact boxer. Doesn't throw too many kicks. Um, mm -hmm. But if he doesn't like what he's getting on the feet from uh, Marais, he's going to take it down. Like, he's proven uh, against the guys he's fought. You know, Marab has fought strikers. He's fought submission specialists. He's fought fellow wrestlers. He's been able to get the fight to the ground whenever he wants. And once he's down there, he is not a lay-and-pray guy. I mean, he's high pressure from top position. Trying to advance position constantly, which... I, then forces his opponents onto the defensive. And when you're on the defensive, you're, you know, you're not able to uh, come up with submission and, and sweep attempts as, as easily. Uh, he's constantly peppering them with strikes, just making life miserable for them. And the most demoralizing thing is on the rare occasions that they've been able to pop up, he's good at mat returns. And generally, you know, this thing ends up back on the ground before they've even like broken contact from each other. Uh, he's, he's a miserable like opponent for most people, I think he's going to be a miserable opponent for Marais. Uh, I see a bit of a coming out party for him here. And if he can get a finish or just at least do some spectacular things, because I mean, he has the longest, uh, the, like the longest winning streak and the shortest highlight reel of basically any like Bantamweight in the division. If he can do something impressive that can, you know, propel him in forward in the public consciousness as he propels himself up the rankings, you know, like this guy might be in the title picture like sooner than later. And I, I think it happens. Uh, give me Marab by a very one-sided decision that will be uh, deflating for Marais fans. Uh, you know, I, I can only hope we hear Matt Sarah screaming in his corner. I, I don't know if that'll be the case, but uh, Marab really by a unanimous decision, you know, maybe a 10-8 round in there somewhere as he just completely mauls Marais on the ground. Yeah, you mentioned that Molly Marais is 33 years old, but with all that wear and tear on the tires, I mean, you figure you talk about the Henry Cejudo fight, you talk about the knockout against Corey Sanhagen, the blastering by Rob Font, like, it, there's a lot of wear and tear on those tires, and, like, he, he could easily be 43 years old. Uh some of the goods, like he's still fast, he's still explosive. Uh, he he still has good power. I mean, I'm assuming he still has good power, though he hasn't been able to knock it out recently. Uh, he switches stances a lot. He can fight from both stances, though I think he's better from the orthodox. Good lateral movement. He likes to work from space, uh, and he tends to fight in quick bursts. 
he's very left side heavy. Like he has a crushing left hook. He has a crushing switch kick knockout, like legendary left kick switch kick knockout. Um, but he's a bit of a front runner. I think Henry Suhudo showed that. He does bash when he can just get a big brother them and start winning. As soon as you kind of put it back on him like Henry Cejudo did, he, he's kind of folded. He doesn't like being pressured. Uh, you figure Cejudo wore him out with that. Jose Aldo, even though Jose Aldo lost, Jose Aldo had success pressuring him. Rob Font was blitzing, had him on the back foot. And then, obviously, Corey Sanhagen was probably the best example of that. Uh, Marais, you mentioned he, he can grapple, he can sneak in the takedown. He's pretty good in like these wild scrambles, but he and he has a submission threat. But when he's on his back, he plays BJJ. He doesn't really try to scramble back up. Um, as far as as far as Marab, you 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 break down their records when you do your introduction. <laughs> I'm gonna say this every single time. I think Marab should be eight and zero in the UFC now. I think he beat Frankie Signs, and I think he got absolutely screwed against Ricky Simone. So I would have him undefeated, which also would help him undefeated in the UFC, which also would bump him up the rankings. Uh, you mentioned him being on the feet. He's like a berserker style. He just has tons of erratic movement, just throws caution to win, throwing hard power shots nonstop, just winging shots. will throw in like a spinning attack, kind of just throws punches to uh, – overwhelm you and then when you back up towards the cage you give him the perfect target to shoot and then by him throwing big power shots be- to set up his takedowns you it's forcing you to have to land your hand lift your hands up it gives him even more of a target on his hips when he shoots and he's on your hips he has he's just he has insane takedowns just closes the distance so fast just chains together together takedowns has the maybe the deepest gas tank in all of mma and what i mean by that is He's so wrestle happy, but he never tires. Like that's the t- most tiring thing, especially offensive wrestling, getting in the hips, driving, pulling. And I think like, everyone talks about his wrestling. I said this last time. It's not his wrestling. It, like his wrestling's great. It's his cardio that's off the charts that allows him to wrestle at a pace that we don't see anybody else do. Um, you talked about his uh, moving advancement position on on top. I actually think that's a weakness of him. I think he doesn't secure the position enough, and that's actually why you see fighters be able to get back to his feet. But he's so good at latching back down to something. Bring as you said, Matt returns bringing right back down. Uh, as far as predictions goes, even though this is one of the marquee matchups and, and definitely the marquee matchup on the prelims, and easily could be on the main card. I'm with you, man. I think this is going to be much more one-sided than we expect. I see Marais having two chances of winning. One is just landing a huge shot when Marab is throwing wild shots at him, which Marais is, you know, known for his power, especially, the, you know, one of the bigger punchers, maybe the biggest puncher in, in the, you know, lower weight classes. And the other way I can see him win is just catching Marab in the guillotine when he shoots as, as he is a Brazilian black belt. That's something he's we he, he saw him uh, on his way up before the UFC using that guillotine. However, the longer this fight goes on, the uglier it gets, the more I feel that it favors Marab. I have a bad feeling Marais is is going down the Henneborough route where suddenly he's losing. Like, this is not a bad loss to him, but I have a feeling it's just going to continue. Like, he's going to start losing the guys that he should not be losing to. So give me Marab. Also, I agree with you. This is his breakout performance. Give me Marab by by a pretty one-sided decision. There you go. Two strong picks for uh, Marab Dwalish-Billy to close out the UFC 266 prelims in resounding fashion.
The UFC 266 main card kicks off with a flyweight contenders match between Jessica Andrade and Cynthia Calvillo. Andrade, the 29-year-old Brazilian, is 21-9 and overall. She is 12-7 and in the UFC uh, in a run that began in 2013 and has now spanned three different weight divisions. Uh, like several other fighters on this card, uh, the 12-7 and number... Uh, Looks a little different when you pull out that she is three and three at bantamweight, seven and three at strawweight, and is one and one since moving to flyweight, uh, in the wake of her uh, loss to Rose Namajunas in her last strawweight fight. Uh, she'll be taking on Calvillo, the 34-year-old uh, Bay Area native, is nine two and one in her uh, professional mixed martial arts career. She is six two and one uh, since joining the UFC but uh, was originally a strawweight and is just one and one at flyweight as well since moving up uh, a little over a year ago. Odds on this one do favor the uh, former strawweight champ Andrade pretty heavily. She's minus 275. You can get Calvillo at plus 235 on the comeback. Uh, Keith, because Calvillo was a, a kind of a late starter in MMA, like she was almost 30 at the time of her UFC or, or her professional debut and therefore a late comer to the UFC, she almost has like the feeling of more of a, a up and comer than Andrade, even though she's four years older. I mean, Andrade has almost twice as many UFC fights as Calvillo has fights. Uh, do you see routes to victory for Calvillo here? Do, I mean, do you think she pulls it off and, you know, if you don't think she does, you know, what do you think are her best avenues to victory? Who who wins this fight and how? Yeah, that actually surprised me that Calvillo is older than Andrade. If you told me one was four years older than the other, I definitely would have guessed Andrade. As you said, like, Calvillo has a prospect feeling to her, which um, makes you feel much worse about her potential moving forward that she's already 34 and probably at the end of her prime. Now, she... I'll start with her then. Calvillo, she has improved her stand-up recently. We've seen that. Uh, but I still think, and I said this last time, I think she's a basic boxer where she just kind of has her basic one-twos and can sneak in a high kick. She does switch stances, try to fight from uh, both sides, does well to keep her head off the center line. So she does a lot of good things, but she lacks power. And overall, I don't think she's as much threatening in the stand-up. On the ground, though, decent entries, does really well to just drive through opponent's hips, has a very wrestle-heavy style to her grappling, uh, very good back takes, very good ground and pound, and is a submission threat. Now move over to the former champ, the former um, strawweight champion, Jessica Andrade. Insane output, just fights and blitzes and overwhelms opponents with, or with her power and her, and her output, almost just this time she can be so aggressive and runs at her opponent to go, go back to the Whaley Zhang fight where she got knocked out. Like that cost her the fight. And she going against like Rose Nami Yunus, she struggles finding range because she tends to chase instead of cutting off the cage. And uh, you want to know, Jay checks another good example in her fight like that, where she really struggled to kind of uh, trap you want to know, Jay check. But when she does get into her range, though, she's scary. Like, when she gets into the pocket, all power shots, hooks, uppercuts, uh, hard, hard blows. They go out, like, the Carolina Kovacavich, where she gets in there and lands good shots. Um, yeah, it was yeah, it was Kovacavich. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah Kovacavich. Yep. okay, yeah. Um, crushing power, and I actually think that power looks even better at 125. 
hard leg kicks also a thing. She she'll attack the legs, and um, she doesn't check leg kicks. So she's so heavy on her front foot. That's something that um, like Yuanya and Jacek had success against her. But she's also probably the best part of the game is how easily she gets the fight to the ground because of her insane strength. She she gets her hand on your legs. You're going for a ride. Uh, we all remember like how she won the title with the Rose Nine units picking her up and slamming her on her head and getting a knockout. Um, it wasn't a fluke. Like a lot of people think that was a fluke. She did three times at the same. Like that, it was the third one mm-hmm. that knocked Rose Namajunas out, uh, and then on top, crippling, just power with her ground and pound. Um, as far as the prediction goes, you, the way you worded the questions, the, I'm assuming you're picking on draws because you made it seem like the road victory for Calvillo is is very limited, and I would agree with that to your assessment. I think this is a really bad stylistic matchup for Calvillo. Andrade is just too strong for her. I expected her to march it down, land the bigger shots, and then just pick her up in the air and slam her. And once on top, I see her pin her against the cage, battering her. Calvillo is slick enough and, and, and tough enough that she may be able to make it through a decision. But I've always been really high on Andrade. I think Andrade just really shines at this moment. I'm going to say she actually gets a TKO by ground and pound. Give me Jessica Andrade for second round TKO. Hey, I am uh, I, I am all with you here. It's it's similar uh, for Andrade as it was to, as it is for Marla Marais, whom I just talked about uh, a few minutes ago, where her record like kind of belies the level of competition she's been fighting. Like since she dropped from Bantamweight, and the thing that made her drop from Bantamweight was losing a fight to uh, Raquel Pennington, and that just made her even with Raquel Pennington, who is still one of the best Bantamweights in the division. But since then, I mean, she's 8-4. and four. The four women that have beaten her, Ioana Jandajic, Weili Zhang, Rose Namajunas, and Valentina Shevchenko, all either champs or number one contenders, and at least three of them are among the most accomplished women in MMA history. Like, it's ridiculous, like, what it takes to... To like beat Jessica Andrade and here where she's taking on you know kind of a I, I don't know exactly what she's ranked in the UFC rankings but uh in the sure dog rankings that of course include all promotions she's just outside the top 10 she's pro- which means she's probably like number seven or number eight in the UFC rankings like Jessica Andrade is going to serve a reminder to the UFC matchmakers that if a woman doesn't have a number one or number two next to her name don't even bother sending them her way uh this isn't just a difference in experience athleticism skill set it's that their specific skills match up really badly for calvio uh calvio has some nice tricks on the feet but andrage is just a murderer and calvio is not great at navigating range neither navigating the range of a taller fighter like she had nothing for caitlin jacagian she just she never got used to dealing with the reach not great at keeping shorter fighters off her jessica andrage is gonna get inside effortlessly mauler with hooks maybe that maybe a nasty hook to the body like the one she used to finish Chikagian. And if it goes to the ground, and this, I mean, I'll make a specific prediction. Like, this goes to the ground, like, Andrade, like, shoots, maybe turns a double into a high single, scoops her up, throws her down, and Calvillo is, like, working from guard, like, working on an arm or something, while Andrade is just smashing her with hammer fist from above, and this thing ends with, like, a ground and pound TKO first round. Ben, before we move on, let me ask you this question. And, and I'll ask this again on the recap if, if Jessica Andrade wins, which we both assume. So she's in a really tough position where, you know, she's lost to the, the champion. 
you know, she's one and one against the champion at strawweight, but she's also lost to the flyweight champion. She's in that weird sense. If Jessica Andrade went to Bellator, but she won the title at one twenty-five, would you favor her right now over the champion, Juliana Vasquez? Yes, I, I would. I would favor her against Juliana Velasquez, but Velasquez presents Velasquez. more. Yeah, she presents more of a threat to Andrade than any UFC flyweight other than Shevchenko. Because the thing about Velasquez is she's uh, like really big and strong. Like you, she showed the problem with Alina McFarland, and yeah. like she, like I don't think she like the ground would be a completely safe place for Andrade. You know, yeah. like I, I think it would be an interesting fight. I but, think Andrade would absolutely murder Alina McFarland. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm I'm with you. I, yeah. Anyways, back back to this. Sorry. No, I, I I liked I liked that aside, but that's kind of where she's getting to be. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, like uh, for a variety of reasons, she's not a screamingly marketable contender. You know, like, uh, and she, I mean, she's not even thirty yet. And she's she not even thirty. She should be marketable because she's she's really fun to watch. I completely agree. Like you you enjoy watching Andrade. I, I, I love, love watching Andrade, but to you know the average fan or to fans who came to MMA through like blogs of ten hottest women in the UFC and then like the list like only like three of them are actually in the UFC, but you know they just yeah. like it's never going to work. Like the stocky non-English speaking, like lesbian, like contender is just not going to bring in the, you know, the Ronda Rousey contingent. Uh, but I mean, we might be there because she is running up against roadblocks everywhere. Like nobody's going to beat Shevchenko anytime soon, but nobody's even going to need to see a rematch between them for a while. I don't know if she wants to go back down to strawweight if the champ is a you know, it is a fresh face. I, I don't know if, like, she can still make that cut. I don't know. Like, she might end imagine, up in Bellator or something. Imagine her, if she went back down to 115, imagine her in the, and I know this is not possible, but her in the one championship 115-pound tournament. <laughs> imagine her against a champion, Angela Lee. And I love Angela Lee, but imagine her versus Angela Lee. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I mean, I actually want her to leave the UFC because I'm intrigued by these matchups. It would sure make doing like the pound for pound rankings easier because we would have like a measuring stick. <laughs> like she could go on like a world tour, like go over and to Bellator and, you know, thrash a, a couple of them and maybe have a great title fight with Velasquez. Go over to one championship and like throw Angela Lee into the ocean, you know, like I I'm here for it. <sighs> Jessica Andrade, we love you. Hey, hey, one last thing, one last thing. She's a, yeah, 125 pounds. She's actually fought at 135, but yep. she's 105, probably 115 pounder. Not that she would win. I'm not picking her to win this, but is she better competition for Kayla Harrison than anybody else? Why not? Kayla like Harrison beat Mary. Right? Kayla like, Harrison beat Mariana Moraes, who is a former flyweight this season. Yeah, but like Larissa Pacheco, like she's a better competition than Larissa Pacheco. Yeah, and and Larissa Pacheco is another one that like actually has losses to uh, some yeah. UFC fighters, like. And now we're obviously getting off the rails when I'm talking about her fight. Way, way off the rails. By, 
155 pound Kyle Harris. I just thought it'd be fun. Throw it out. Also, man, five foot, 255 pound, like Jessica Andrade so, would be so hilarious. I'll give you one more thing for our listeners. We're taping at 225 AM. So this is not my normal time of taping. So this is what happens when, when I'm a little tired. I go off the rails. Getting a little punchy. All right. <laughs> yeah. Next up, it is a heavyweight contenders match between Curtis Blades and Jairzinho Rosenstrike. Blades, the 30-year-old Oklahoman by way of Illinois, by way of Colorado, is 14-3 with one no contest overall. He is 9-3 with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, that one no contest was a TKO win over Adam Milstead that was overturned due to uh, a positive test for marijuana so make of that what you will but he's taking on Rosenstrike the 33 year old Suriname native is 12 and 2 overall he is 6 and 2 since joining the UFC back in early 2019 uh rattled off four straight wins to open his UFC career including a little bit of a legends tour of knockouts of Andre Arlovsky and Alistair Overeem uh, since then he has suffered setbacks but only to the best of the best in uh, Francis Ngannou and Surreal Ghan uh, fought most recently back in June taking a first round knockout of Augusto Sakai in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 189 uh, Blades one of the bigger favorites on the card, uh, minus 315 as of the time of this recording. Rosenstrike plus 255 or plus 260 as the underdog. <clears throat> uh, Curtis Blades feels like an updated version of like a late 90s, early 2000s heavyweight in that he's one of the true specialists left in the division. Like his striking is not bad. It's completely serviceable. Like, I'm in fact, I mean, there are heavyweights in the UFC heavyweight division who present as strikers, but I think Curtis Blades is probably just an act actually a better kickboxer than they are. Sure. But he's the throwback in that he is a true specialist. Like he, it is screamingly obvious what he wants to do. And the fight hinges on is whether he's going to be able to do it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, if Curtis Blades it, was around in 2002, Curtis Blades would be like one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. Oh, yeah. Like, you, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Sandra. he's, I mean, he's, he's already the UFC heavyweight division's all-time leader in takedowns. You know, he passed up your Cain Velasquez as your Randy Couture's, you insert name, a great wrestler here. I know Brock Lesnar wasn't in the UFC for that many fights, but it's not even close. Like Curtis Blades, like has as many takedowns in one or two fights, like the Volkov fight and one other as like Brock had period. It's, it's ridiculous. His takedown assault. Um, I've, I've said this, I, I feel like I've hammered this into the ground. Like I say this about Blades every time we talk about him. But if you put Blades like up against a wall 50 feet away and didn't put anyone next to him <laughs> to put his size into perspective, you could think he was just like an athletic middleweight. You don't realize until you get up on him that he's like six foot four, 255 pounds. Just, you know, he's proportioned uh, differently. And he is, he's an athlete. Um, he, he, I mean, he has he has the kind of like shots and entries that you don't see out of heavyweights, even who are very good wrestlers. Great chain wrestler, um, an emphatic finisher. He's got that Cain Velasquez thing where we're not just going to kind of tip over. Like, I'm going to shoot through your hips, scoop you up, and slam you so like your breath is knocked out, and I'm inside control before <laughs> like you even know where you are. And not a lay and pray artist. Like he beats the crap out of people on the ground. He's not quite the terrifying, like Velasquez level of ground and pound, not 
the Fedor level of ground and pound for such a relatively smaller guy, but hits hard, uh, doesn't run out of gas down there. Like you'll break before he does. Um, like the the Overeem fight for Blades was a great example because Alistair Overeem uh, on the ground, it, I mean, he's a super veteran, super tough guy, extremely capable of taking care of himself and defending himself. And it took just a minute of lapse of attention and uh, just a minute of just maybe getting tired and getting frustrated and a pretty straightforward 30-27 decision just turned into a bloodbath. Yeah. That's that's what Curtis Blades brings to the table. And we've we've talked about how good Alistair Overeem is on the ground. Like we've said that he's probably better on the ground than he is striking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And always underratedly dangerous there. So uh, good. Yep. And but the like if what Blades wants to do is screamingly obvious, the way to stop him from doing it or the way to beat him is equally so. I mean, who's he lost to? Francis Ngannou twice, Derek Lewis once. What you need to do is either before he can even shoot, punch him behind the ear really, really hard, or since you know he's going to shoot, catch him with an uppercut or a knee. Now, it's easy to say, but the only people who have actually done it are Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis. Um, am I picking Jairzinho Rosenstrike to do that? No, he could. I mean, Rosenstrike, Absolutely. Uh, he has a ton of power. He throws all the strikes. He has great kicks, great punches, fast hands. Um, he can throw kicks to all levels in a way that you know, not many heavyweights can. Like you can tell that he transitioned from kickboxing to MMA, but I can see it happening, but I'm not going to pick it to happen. Uh, Rose, Rosenstrike, I think he's going to get put on, on the back foot by blades immediately and on the seat of his pants. Not long after that, uh, you know, blades will either shoot or he'll scoop up the first kick. Uh, I think this thing's on the ground by the midpoint of the, of the first round. And from there, whether it makes it to the end of the first round is really just a, a question of whether Rosenstrike's ground game has evolved at all or how merciful Blades is feeling. Uh, I'm thinking the Blades is feeling pretty grouchy. Um, so <laughs> even though I think both of these guys are like right on the cusp of the top five, Blades is going to make this look like a route. Uh, give me Curtis Blades by a nasty ground and pound TKO in the first round. Yeah. Um... Curtis Blades is only 30 years old, which for a guy who's been in the UFC for a long time, been in the top 10 for a long time, and just being a heavyweight in general, like 30, he's like, it's like Victoria Lee Young for a heavyweight division. Like that's, and being only 30, uh, like we might not even see a prime Curtis Blades yet. He's massively big. You talked about his frame. He's got like these long arms. He's really developing his stand up. Uses a lot of shoulder feints, uh, which means you, you can tell that he's working with boxers if he's using shoulder feints. Uh, he's really developing his straight right, hard leg kicks. He's obviously just like how big the guy is. He's got big power. Uh, I love that he strikes to set up his takedowns. But as you mentioned, chin is a problem. Like he's been caught with one shot. Yeah, like you said, the two honestly, historically, is is Francis Ngano and Derek Lewis the two biggest hitters in the history of the UFC? Uh punchers, probably. They're probably yeah. the two hardest one-punch punchers in the history of the UFC. Maybe Shane Carwin. Maybe, you know, maybe Junior Dosant. I, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, they're, they're at least in the club. They get in the they're club. They're in the club. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but like you said, I don't know who has better entries ever at heavyweight than Curtis Blades. Like, even Cain Velasquez, obviously, might be the other one that I'm thinking of, and, and Brock Lesnar. But, but – 
he's in the club for that too. Like he, he's in the club for like best entries, uh, pure wrestling. He just shoots doubles and just as you said, he's so consistent when the dress drives through. Uh, he kept a solid grappler like Alexander Volkov on his canvas for the whole fight. Did the same thing with Shamil Abdurrahim. Both those guys are known for like being good underrated grapplers, and they had no answer for Curtis Blade. He just so you talked about him being different than Kane Velasquez and and Fedor Emelianenko. Kane Velasquez would control on the ground, but he take you down, and he just stayed so busy. Fedor it was a guy who like historically would just sit in your guard and just kind of throw wildly looping shots. That's not that's not what. Curtis Blades does. Curtis Blade inches. He's like a heavyweight Habib. Now, I don't like to throw out the name Habib because it's obviously different, but like he inches, he inches. He, he puts his body weight on you. He wears you down with his body, slowly get into a better position. And then finally, when he has secured the better position, then he starts going house on you. And when he starts going house, when you're tired, because not, not only is he going house on you, but he tired you down first, like he did to Al Rahimov. Just, okay, you're going to try to work up. All right, I'm going to. Grab onto your wrist. I'm gonna break down, you know, your, the table base, as they say. The, the the table is just starting to get you the way up. I'm gonna continue making you work back up to your hip, and just slows you where you sit down. And then finally, when your body starts to fold, then he puts on you. He's got those big hands and big arms. He's dropping big shots on you. He he got really does have some really scary ground and pound. The one thing that is really other than getting caught is that he had, he did slow down in the Volkov fight, but I, I also think that's just an outlier because of how many takedowns the Volkov was able to work through his feet, how many takedowns he got. Usually he gets one takedown, and that's all he needs. Now Rosenstruck, uh, I like. There's a lot of things I like about him. For like an experienced kickboxer, he's, he's very loose, he's very composed. He he makes a mistake of not having a head movement. That's due to the kickboxing style where they kind of hide, they pillar a lot behind the big hands. Uh, but I, what I love is there's not a lot of tells in a strike. No preloading, um, short stuff. He's a counter striker. He can be gun shy. We saw that in the Overeem fight. We saw that in the JDS fight. We saw that in the Surreal Gone fight. Like it's not just one or two fights. Like it's became a pattern. He's a very Tyron Woodley type, just throw punches in him. Uh, patience to a fault, but in his last fight, uh, when he let his hands go against the Sakai, he's deadly. He's accurate. He doesn't even need to clip, like catch it clean. He can just clip you and put you out. Uh, he throws straight punches down the pipe. He's got a power jab, crushing power. Uh, his his shovel uppercut, that little short kind of uppercut kind of hook, shovel hook. That shot he put on Overeem's lip. Went into like the twelfth row and stuff is is one of my favorite strikes in MMA history. Uh, and then he landed a uh, similar hook, just caught the timing of Sakai. Sakai was trying to break away. And if but, I may, that punch on Overeem changed the course of the fight with like ten seconds left. Because oh, otherwise, yeah. he he was about to lose four out of five rounds. Yeah, like yeah. he snatched victory from defeat. Because if he would even just hurt Overeem, mm-hmm. Overeem wins the fight. Like he looked, Overeem looked like he'd been mauled by a dog. Yeah. The and biggest, the fight was stopped. The biggest issue with Sakai just, I mean, uh, uh, excuse me, Roadstrike, he doesn't let his hands go. But in fantasy, we started seeing that with the Sakai. But he took a while. He was still patient, patient, patient. He just finally let his hands go at the end of the first round instead of end of the very fight. Uh, hard kicks, really turns over his hips, good calf kicks. But his takedown defense is horrendous. His credit game is horrendous. So prediction, who's going to win? I'm going to say this. You said Rosarick better hit him, and he's coming in. He's got basically he's got to knock him out in the first fifteen seconds. I actually, it's crazy. This it sounds like he got knocked out. He, you know, Curtis Blades got knocked out by Francis Gano 
twice. He got knocked mm-hmm. out with Derek Lewis. But if you land those three guys up and you said Curtis Blaze is about to take you down, you got a 15-second window to land a big shot. Roadstruck's actually the guy that has a skill that I actually favor because he doesn't wind up. He doesn't throw looping shots like the other guys do. I mean, Derek Lewis historically throws from, like, his hips. So does, I mean, Francis Gallo does, too. That's not Derek Lewis. He throws short, not a lot of tells kind of punches. So he actually has one of the better chances of landing that shot, but that's it. Like, the other two guys can get up, especially Derek Lewis. That's not the case with Roadstruck. So... I don't know who's given Jardina Rosenberg advice. Like, I don't know who said, hey, yeah, fight Curtis Blades. I remember when we did the recap after his last fight and we were matching him up. I, was, I remember saying, like, hey, if he's going back in the title picture, if he's going to work himself up, avoid Curtis Blades until maybe Curtis Blades is the champion. You have to fight him. Like, avoid him at all costs. And he didn't listen to us. Maybe some other MMA podcast was giving him bad advice. Maybe he should listen to us. Because this is a horrendous stylistic matchup. Curtis Blades is going to maul Rosenstreich. He's going to take him down in 10 seconds, shoot immediately, get on top, and pound him out. He's not going to get out of the first round. Curtis Blades, just like destruction, first-round TKO. Third from the top at UFC 266, it is a rematch 17 and a half years in the making. Uh, that is a UFC record for the longest uh, gap between the first and second fights in a rivalry. It is not the overall MMA record for that. You would need to go uh, see Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock, but it is a UFC record. It is Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler running back their uh, April 2003 fight at UFC, 240, uh, UFC 247. At UFC 47, just two digits. Man, this fight. It's weird. It's weirdly appealing. Is 47, is this bad that I know? That's Chuck Tito one, isn't it? Yep. Another off the top of my head. That's how stark yep. that was. Anyways, get, well, carry on. Well, I remember it super well. I, I mean, I will not get into it five minute aside, but it's like their first fight is one of the first highlights that burned itself in my brain as a new highlight because I think UFC 45 was the first UFC pay-per-view I bought with my own money. So it was within the first few. Five was, don't tell me. Let me think. Hughes Trick? Yes. Hughes Trick. Very nice. Uh, Was it the Mohegan Sun? Did you go? Um, That one I did go. Oh, there you go. All right. uh, Anyway, this one is taking place at middleweight. It had been announced at welterweight originally. It was changed middle of fight week. It is taking place at middleweight now. Also, please be aware that it is a scheduled five-round fight. It's a five-round non-title, non-main event fight. So those two things are peculiar about what is already a very peculiar fight, obviously. Uh, Nick Diaz, 38-year-old Stockton, California native, is 26-9 and with two no contests. Both of those no contests are for weed, if you were in any doubt about that. he has not fought since uh, January of 2015, where a unanimous decision lost to Anderson Silva was uh, overturned to a no contest uh, after Silva and uh, Diaz both tested positive for banned substances. Prior to that, he hadn't fought since 2013. Uh, unanimous decision lost to George St. Pierre. Uh, 
ultimately you have to go all the way back to October of 2011 and UFC 137 for his last win in MMA. So uh, that was a dominant decision over BJ Penn, but it's been almost a decade since he's had a win. He will be taking on Lawler, the former UFC uh, welterweight champ, 39 years old, uh, born in San Diego, California, by way of Iowa, 28 and 15 with one no contest uh, overall. He is, uh, he's had two different runs in the UFC, four and three in his first run all the way back 2002 to 2004. Uh, came back in 2013 after the collapse of uh, Strike Force and Elite XC. He's been nine and six in the UFC since then, a run that did see him win uh, the UFC welterweight title. Uh, but he is currently on a four fight losing streak. Those uh, losses coming against Rafael Dos Anjos, Ben Askren, Colby Cummington, and most recently, last uh, August at UFC Fight Night, uh, Smith versus Rockich, a unanimous decision loss to Neil Magny. Odds on this one, how do you handicap a fight like this? Uh, a couple weeks out, it was a pick em. It was minus 110, minus 110 uh, last Saturday. It has diverged a little bit at this point. Right now, uh, Lawler is the slight favorite. I'm looking at it like hot and fresh off the presses. Lawler, eh, minus 120 is about the best you can get him. Diaz, you can get a plus 110 or plus 115 as the slight underdog. Keith? I went to do some uh, tape study on Nick Diaz, but I couldn't find my VHS machine, so I'm going to kick this one to you first. Uh, why is this happening, and what happens when it happens? Yeah, so this is the part which so many of our listeners had just fast-forward right to this part where we're predicting. Um, I'm going to say this. You know I love the pageantry of MMA. Like I love the trash-talking. I love the backstories. I love something that... Like I, I, I love obviously just two guys fighting, but I like all the stuff that adds to it. That's like a, one part of me. But then I also have this part of me that's a purist. And every once in a while, you don't know how I, I, I see a fight, which one I'm going to go with. I'm on the purest one on this one. Out of all the fights on the card, this is one of the fights I'm like least excited about. Like so many people are... This is the main event. This is the one they really care about, the casuals. I was talking to my friend John. He was super excited about Nick Diaz coming back and he talking about title fights and all this nonsense. And I'm like, dude, no, no. Um, Nick Diaz hasn't won a fight, as you said, in 10 years. I remember watching him fight the BJ Penn the last time he won a fight. I was at my brother-in-law's house in Canada. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, I was in – Heartland, New Brunswick, Canada. So if there's any listeners out in Heartland, New Brunswick, little ho uh, home to the world's longest covered bridge. Maybe we have one listener who knows who that is. If it is, hey, put a comment in the YouTube. Tell us that you know where it is. Anyways, that's where my wife's from. I was watching this with my uh, two brother-in-laws. That brother-in-law whose house I was at, since that fight, he went on and built this. He, he owns a uh, – he, he's very well off. He owns a, a metal roofing company and he's he's doing well for himself he built a house then he sold that house <laughs> so we're, we watched this one house then he built a different house then he sold the house that he built moved into another house bought a new house then he bought he built an even bigger bigger and nicer house now 
all he's done all that since the last time <laughs> Nick Diaz has won a fight. Um, Robbie Lawler, on the ha- other hand, I'm gonna start with Robbie Lawler, former champion, Southpaw, low output. I mean, he's at the back nine of his career. I mean, he's lost, was it four, four of his last five? Five of his last six. Sorry, five of his last six. I mean, he got mauled by Colby Covington, Neil Magny, the Ben Askren controversial fight. Obviously, got knocked out by Tyron Woodley. Beat uh, Cerrone is the only win. And what's the one I'm forgetting? I'm forgetting. Cerrone it. is the win. So it was he lost. He lost. He got knocked out by Woodley. Beat Cerrone. Rafael dos Anjos. Oh, dos Anjos. Dos Anjos, then Askren, then Covington, then Neil Magny. Okay, that's not a good run. But to his credit, those are good names. Like, that's not a bad like loss. Uh, how he lost is bad. I mean, he's clearly he's on back now. What I don't like about him is is he has low output. His output has really fallen. He, and I don't know if he has the cardio to throw as much as he used to. And now this is a guy that even in his prime when he was a champion, he would take a round off or take or not. I don't know necessarily a round, but take portions of of a fight off so he can kind of pick it back up later, um, kind of pace himself. <laughs> I don't know if he's just pacing himself with much longer parts. I still think he has power, and I say the word think. Because in his last fight against Neil Magny, he was backing Magny up with strikes early. Um, if he gets in that mid-range, he can unload power hooks. Uh, he obviously is historically strong, all the way back to when they fought when they were in the early 20s to now. He's he's known as one of the biggest hitters and just physically strong guy. He throws hard leg kicks. Um, he did, he doesn't throw them enough. He is the better pure wrestler than, than Nick Diaz is. Uh, he did win some wrestling exchanges against Neil Magny and going back a couple years ago against Ben Ashton, he actually was doing well in wrestling against Ben Ashton, which is extremely, I mean, you're talking about former Hodge trophy winner, Olympic gold medalist was a two time NCAA champion, like legend of, of amateur wrestling. Um, but his takedown defense against Neil Magny was really troublesome and he's not a submission threat. He really never was a submission threat. Uh, he struggles to get back up. To his credit, though, he was pressing pretty hard, um, pressing much harder against Neil Magny Thurow than he was like Kobe Covington in their fight. Um, but another thing that concerns me is that Robbie Lola has taken a god awful amount of damage. Now, move over to Nick Diaz. How the hell do I break down Nick Diaz? He hasn't fought in six years. Like. I rewatched the Anderson Silva fight to see his last last fight, and, and can you take anything from him from that fight? Do no. we even know if he's even like a shell no. of that guy? Like six years ago, Robbie Lawler was the champion of the division and was pound pound one of the best guys in the world. Now we're saying he's done, bummed, like enjoy retirement. I mean, I was watching his uh, pressers today and. The guy, one of the media members was asking about, like, thinking about retiring, <laughs> like, you know, like, and then we're excited when Nick Diaz returns. So I'm trying to think of like, the best Nick Diaz we've had or, or, or somewhat best of what we've recent or I shouldn't say recently, but near the end of his career. This guy that walks through punches, that was his thing. He walked through punches with his over, like, over exaggerated high guard and just, High volume, just touching, touching, non-stop touching. 
kind of an underrated power because he would just keep throwing punches and then eventually he'd, he'd catch a really good clean one. But he always lacked head movement. He was never a good athlete. Never great. They were kind of flat, flat-footed, kind of slow. I, I don't think he just suddenly got better over six years. Like at 38 and, and partying and seeing him getting drunk and and looking really fat. I mean, the, they moved the weight class up to 185. They showed the pictures today. He's, in, he's now in Vegas and they have that like when they're warming up and it's going to be the highlight thing. He looks fat. But mind you, as for an 185, I mean, for a professional athlete. Um, for a former lightweight. For a former lightweight. He's now up to middleweight. He's looking chubby. He hasn't won a fight in 10 years. He should have the BJJ edge, but I want to say something about his jitsu, especially Nick's. I think it's grossly overrated. I, I, I think he's a much better boxer than he was a jiu-jitsu artist. So as a prediction goes, anybody who has a firm take on this fight is full of shit. So if you watch <laughs> other shows, if you watch other shows and someone says, "Oh, dude, this guy's gonna win for sure," or "Oh, bet this," and then. Like anybody tells you to bet on this fight and then they win and then pretend like there's some sharp line, they're full of shit. They just got lucky because nobody knows what's going to happen in this fight. Give me Lawler simply because he's been fighting. <laughs> uh, I I don't like that he's taken six years more worth of damage. He's been in wars. I mean, since we've last seen him, he had the Ro- Nick fight. We've had the Robbie Lawler, uh, Ro- Ro- Roy McDonald fight. We had the Carlos Condon fight. Absolute kill that get knocked out by Tyron Woodley, the absolute killing of by Colby Covington. Um, but I also think about that same time, Johnny Hendricks was one of the best fighters in the world at that time. Like Johnny Hendricks arguably beat Robbie Waller twice at about the same time we let saw Nick Diaz. Now we look at Johnny Hendricks as like fat and getting knocked out and bare knuckle boxing, and no one's calling for him to return. But a guy who was worse than Johnny Hendricks at the time, everyone's super excited about and, and want to see him return. I, I think this is going to be an ugly fight. I don't think Nate, uh, Nick is going to be able to do what he did in the past. Like, I don't expect him to be able to, at 38 years old, be able to walk through punches, have high volume. I think we can see some, like two gassed out guys throwing ugly shots. Give me the guy who's been more competitive recently. That said, I'm saying this with no confidence. Like Robbie Lowell is a shot, shot fighter. Um, but give me Robbie Lowell by ugly unanimous decision i'm feeling a lot of what you're laying down there uh the lawler versus magni fight was i mean that was the point where i'm not going to say like gave up on robbie lawler like i'm I'm not his dad i'm not his coach but it was a time when i realized okay the the robbie lawler that i loved watching like isn't he's left the room you know just it's so so trigger shy um you know, it just maybe like Tyron Woodley infected him with something when he knocked him out and it just took a few years to take. But yeah, he, he fought like every punch, like cost him five bucks. Um, having said that, I mean, I'm going to toss aside the, the Askren loss. You, you know, it was a, a, a weird fight. It was a you know bad referee call. You know, he, he talked about his physical strength and his underrated wrestling. I mean, Ben Askren with all his credentials, Woodley tombstone pile driver him onto his head you know like uh and that was just just over two years ago like it feels like it was five years ago it was just over two years ago like robbie lawler is shot 
but I don't know if he's completely spent. I mean, if if you were entering the last phase of your career and your gas tank is becoming a problem and pace and output are becoming a problem, Rafael dos Anjos, Colby Covington, and Neil Magny are three of the worst people in the world to go out there against because they're three of the most relentless cardio machines, at least at the time he fought them, in that division. There are guys that who break other people with pressure. Like especially the last two. Especially the yeah, last two. Covington and Magny. Yeah, that's that's the poster right there. And like there are UFC welterweights that Robbie Lawler could still sneak up on and beat, you know? Uh and if there are and if there are some, like I'm I'm not saying that Lawler's anywhere near the top 15 or the top 20. I he's probably in the bottom third of UFC welterweights right now, but there are guys in the division right now he could beat. Like what is Nick Diaz bringing that they couldn't? Like, you, you mentioned that, you know, we, we can't take too much from the Silva fight because it was six years ago. Even if it was six months ago, like, Silva's such a different fighter than than Lawler. Uh, I mean, Nick Diaz, at his absolute best, you you, uh, you made a good point about his jiu-jitsu. He's always been a, a very, uh, very good boxer. Uh, his power is underrated because it's all arm punches until he decides it's time to go in for the kill. You know, like in a boxing gym, I just imagine someone would be grabbing him by his head. You're the first day and screaming at him to sit down on his punches because, yeah, it's just swat, 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 arm punches until he sees that the other guy's flustered, a little rung up, and then he plants and, and starts nailing them. Like, it wasn't against a great fighter, but his perfect performance was was against Scott Smith. You know, Scott Smith, legendarily tough guy, king of the, the comeback, and he has boxed him up until he started hurting him really bad. Then he collapsed, kind of went in for a desperation. I don't know what. Diaz hopped on his back, choked him out. That, that's it. Like, I don't know if, if his jiu-jitsu is overrated, but it's very old-school jiu-jitsu. Like, nobody could bring that grappling yeah. game to MMA starting today. Like, he was a great grappler for 2004. Yeah, that's a better that's a better comparison, yeah. And it's worth mentioning that the only people he's tapped out since 2004 are Smith, whose ass he kicked first, and the ghost of Maha Sakurai. You know, uh, other than that, it's it's been his boxing and his toughness. Um He's he's never checked leg kicks. Not that that'll probably matter too much in this fight. His defensive wrestling, you know, has always been porous and then compounded by willingness to play guard from his back. That shouldn't matter in this fight either. I'm thinking this just turns into kind of a depressing like boxing match between two guys pushing 40. And if that's what we get, I am going to go with Lawler. Like Diaz could certainly win rounds off him because at least in the early going, he'll probably throw more volume. But if he dings Lawler up a few times, Lawler gets pissed. You can tell Lawler's grouchy. This thing got moved to 185. And I mean, Lawler seems a little salty under the best of circumstances, but he was so curt. He was just like, yeah, Dan had to talk with me. It is what it is. Like that was the entire soundbite from Lawler about this. I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's going to go down as one of his greatest performances, not a vintage performance. But, you know, if that gave Lawler the little extra edge he needs to, like, actually throw some strikes, it could get ugly. I mean, it's going to be ugly either way, but, you know, more ugly for Diaz. Either way, give me Lawler by decision. And that it pains me to say because this is a five-round fight and rounds four and five could be, like, bad stuff. But, yeah. Lawler, more proven fighter, more known quantity. He's at least proven he can hang with UFC welterweights at this point in his career, and I have no reason to believe that about Nick Diaz. Yeah, I think uh, us both picking Robert Lawler is not going to make us too popular with a lot of the listeners because Nick has a cult following. That said, do you, like Nick returning, and I don't understand that. 
listen, I'm not in the circles with the contracts. I understand ins and outs of the contract, but Nick returning, like, why isn't he returning to box Jake Paul? Like, that makes way more sense in this matchup. I do. I mean, I don't know what his contract status is. Yeah. You I know, just, I if, I don't know if George St. Pierre could be boxing people right now, he would be, but the UFC yeah. won't let him. I mean, it's possible yeah. that Diaz can't, but I don't know. And to all of you, like Nick Diaz fans, like coming out of the woodwork in your Silver Star t shirts, you know, <laughs> and your Metal Militia like hoodies, you know, like being summoned out of the grave by, by Diaz's return, <laughs> don't be mad at me. I'm a fan too. I wish he'd kept fighting. Like, we yeah. missed out. Well, we missed out we, on. We didn't talk about the weed and all that too, you know, and and yeah. and the, that suspensions and the heat. He, listen, I'm with that. Like, and I'm a police officer, and Nick got a little screwed on some of the some of the things that was going on. Uh, I'll say this: like, Nick Nick wins. That's great for the UFC. Like, that's who the UFC wants to win. Um, I still didn't think it was the right matchup. I think if Nick is hard to get to the fight and you've been waiting forever, I would have done Shemayoff. I would have built up the next star using Nick. Maybe they have a long-term growth. Maybe it's one. I don't know what. Um, but people are a lot more excited for the return of Nick than I expected. I thought he kind of faded behind his brother, and he would have been the other brother, but people are really, really excited about Nick Diaz returning. So that's good yeah. for the UFC. I mean, the last time Nick Diaz fought, he was the more accomplished fighter of the two and the bigger star, like easily, easily both cases. Like the the Conor McGregor fight that catapulted Nate Diaz into what he is now wasn't for a whole other year after that. That's how long Nick Diaz has been gone. I'm going to I'm going to really show my age. But Nick and Nick and Nate Diaz has a uh, Donnie and Mark Wahlberg feel to it. Where Donnie was this big, big new kids on the block star, and Marky was the little Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, and then Marky Mark, not only did he equal the stardom, like passed him, eclipsed, yeah, eclipsed, yeah. There you go. But I don't know, Donnie Wahlberg make a big comeback, and people are excited about it. I don't know. All right, Keith's Boston is showing, so we're going to move on to the the co-main and main event. In <laughs> my age, in my age, <laughs> yeah. The co-main event of UFC 266 is a flyweight title fight between defending champ Valentina Shevchenko and the challenger Lauren Murphy. Shevchenko, the 33-year-old Kyrgyzstani by way of Peru, by way of Thailand, uh, is 21-3 and overall. She's 10-2 and in the UFC. She is 7-0 and since moving from Bantamweight down to flyweight. That includes winning the title and a record-tying five straight title defenses. If she wins on Saturday, she will move into sole possession of the lead for most consecutive title defenses in a women's division out of a three-way tie with Ioana Janjacek and Amanda Nunes. Uh, seeking to keep her from setting that record is Murphy, the 37-year-old, oh, sorry, 38-year-old Alaskan by way of Houston is 15-4 and four overall, she is seven and four in the UFC, but uh, notably she is six and one since moving down to flyweight herself. She is on a five fight winning streak, uh, most recently taking out uh, Joanne Calderwood back in June by split decision at UFC 263. The other uh, wins on that streak, Lilia Shakirova, Roxanne Modafferi, Andrea Lee in a close 
you know, on the verge of controversial decision and Mara Romero Barella all the way back in August of 2019. Uh, Shevchenko is the biggest favorite on the card. Shevchenko is always the biggest favorite on the card, uh, aside from her fight with Jessica Andrade, where she was only, quote, a four to one favorite. She has been at least a 10 to one favorite in all of her title defenses. She is out there at minus 1450 right now. And if you feel like turning five bucks into a decent steak dinner, you can get Murphy at plus 950 as the underdog. It's not Lauren Murphy's fault. And it's not just that she's a great story. I mean, in in the 21st century, uh, you don't get many stories of Lauren Murphy where it's like, yeah, I was, you know, I was a mom and I just wasn't in real good shape. So I walk into, in, walked into a gym and a couple of years later, I'm one of the 10 best fighters in my division and I'm on my way to a title shot in the UFC. Same story Betch Kohea had, you know, like my husband left me, I went to lose some weight and all of a sudden I'm like Ronda Rousey's nemesis. It's a rare story, but she's more than a story. Like she earned her way to this, uh, regardless of how you feel about the uh, Andrea Lee fight. Honestly, I mean, even if she'd lost that, she'd be on a three fight winning streak and three fights in a row and not having fought Valentina Shevchenko yet is more than enough to get you there. Even beyond that, at 38, she's actually fighting the best she ever has. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if it's coming down here to Houston, although Houston is, is a great fight city, but uh, between dropping from 135 to 125, between continuing to sharpen and broaden her skill set after being somewhat of a late starter in MMA, she's fighting the best she ever has. She is the most deserving challenger in the division for Chevchenko, at least, you know, the most deserving one that hasn't fought her yet. She earned her way here, and this is just a dreadful style matchup for her on her five fight winning streak. I mean, she's beaten one of the like sharpest, most technically sound Muay Thai kickboxers in the division in Joanne Calderwood. She's beaten an opportunistic and savvy grappler in Roxanne Modafferi. She's beaten a, a plus athlete who imposes her game on other fighters just by being faster and stronger in Andrea Lee. Now she's facing somebody who forms like Voltron out of all those traits and has all of them at like twice the level of the people she's fought before. Um, see things going for Murphy, like it, there's not even like the puncher's chance or the Hail Mary sub chance because she's a grinder. Um, you know, her, her best fights are just wearing down an opponent with, you know, underrated physical strength and tenacity and good cardio. That's, she's not going to do that to Valentina Shevchenko. I, I mean, Shevchenko is, 33 and she has a lot of MMA fights a lot of those MMA fights against bigger women sometimes much bigger women presumably she's going to start to decline at some points but I'm not picking it to be this uh this weekend the the question here is can Murphy do anything to make it interesting and do we hear the final horn I'm thinking that with Murphy being I mean, she's pretty, she's one of those fighters that again, like she's a grinder when she's like the bigger, stronger fighter, the, you know, but she's still good at, again, sticking a fight in the mud, even when she's not, uh, you know, Laura Murphy doesn't get blown out very often. So I think this could end up looking like uh, Valentina's uh, fight with Jennifer Maya, where, yeah, it made it to the final uh, bell. It was completely dominant. 
Maya snuck around on some people's scorecards, mostly because Shevchenko just kind of took her foot off the gas. And there's that kind of reverse bias where, oh, she absolutely thrashed her last round. So this round was close. It, it must mean that Maya won the round. Like I could see Murphy maybe stealing around like that, but there could also be some 10-8 rounds going the other way. Uh, if Shevchenko chooses to just keep this on the feet, she will just piece Murphy up while Murphy chases after her and tries to clinch or tries to shoot or tries to like mash her up against the cage. But Shevchenko's faster on her feet, has better footwork, great at busting people up at range. Yeah, just I, I give me Shevchenko by an overwhelming decision. Uh, Murphy probably pretty busted up at the end of the night, but I, I do favor us to hear the final horn here. Yeah, so I'll start with Shevchenko. Everything I'm going to say about her, I said about her last time. She's fantastic. She's been flawless. Like, they had, she hasn't had a fight in the division where they, she had a moment where she was even remotely in trouble. Someone had rem, remotely had success against her. I mean, she's been nothing short of perfect. Um, she's a fantastic counter striker, great at using all her tools. She has so much variety in her striking, good volume, good feints. Tremendous speed, the best jab in women's MMA, one of the best regardless of the gender. So accurate, she slides in and out of range so easily, uh, just bounces like a ball in in and out. It's just beautiful. Um, good at countering leg kicks. Instead of instead of checking a leg kick, she just destroys the opponent with a straight shot, um, beating them to the, the you know to the point of contact. Her ground game might even be even better, which is crazy. I'm talking about how good she is on the feet. And I actually think she might even be better on the ground. Unbelievable clinch takedowns, throws, trips, uh, smothering top control, brutal ground and pound. Uh, she is there. I have not found a flaw in Valentina Shevchenko. She's that good. Um, Lauren Murphy. So Lauren Murphy is the opposite of what Valentina Shevchenko is. And I don't mean that in like saying how fantastic Valentina Shevchenko is saying she's not fantastic. Now that's what I'm saying. Like everything that Valentina Shevchenko is like, she's a fantastic athlete. Mur Murphy's she's not a good athlete at all. You said herself, she's mom went to who mom went to cardio kickboxing class or whatever she was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, she, you know, she had a couple pounds. She would want to find a new boyfriend or something. So let me lose 10 pounds. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. She's not a great athlete. She isn't fast, but she just, Keeps showing up. That's what she is. She shows up and gets better. And she makes up for her athletic deficiencies, but with power and output. And even like her power isn't like big power, but she just she she's, she hits harder than Andrea Lee. She hits harder than uh, Joanne Calderwood, and she isn't the most technically sound. But I say she's she gets solid boxing, uh, busy jab. Uh, she generates power because she sits on her punches. Uh, she throws a lot of power shots. She loves to pull her opponents into her punches. Uh, she takes a beat and it continues to keep moving forward. Uh, she does struggle to check kicks, but she's strong in the clinch. I would say she's an okay grappler. You don't see her grapple much, but okay entries, decent top control, uh, okay takedown defense. She's just next woman up. Now, this is an absolute mismatch. Uh, I've been... I've been the leading person when it comes to Laura Murphy deserves a title shot. Like I was saying it like two, two or three fights ago, but don't get me wrong. I never thought she'd win. <laughs> like, like that was never going to be an option. It's just like, yeah, she deserves it. Like it's your turn, your turn to get beat up. Um, 
Shevchenko is way too fast for her. I think she absolutely styles on her. And I've been thinking about the biggest upsets in MMA history and thinking, like, going into the GSP Matt Serra fight, it, if you gave Matt Serra a chance to win, it was never by knockout. Like, no one expected him to land a big shot, which he did. But it was like, oh, well, you're talking about a really good, I mean, you have Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt with, like, a world-class Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Maybe she, he wins by submission. Uh, Holly Holm. Well, Holly Holm's a decorated boxer and kickboxer. She could circle, do exactly what she did. She could win. Uh, TJ Lillishaw was a great athlete. Like, all these biggest upsets, I can't even think of a way Lauren Murphy wins, other than a freak injury. Like, but that can happen in any fight, so you don't count them. I mean, you like, I'm trying to find the uh, Randy Gotor or Vitor Belfour, like, like dirty weird box. cut. Dirty box? No, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. No. oh sorry, sorry. No, sorry. You're saying Couture, Couture beating Belfort. The first time when, when it was, yeah. even though it's not considered up to it, but at that time it was considered a huge upset. Like, dirty boxing. and like. But I don't. I can't see her doing that. I, I have no way she wins. So, I, she's super tough, probably for her own good. I think she's going to take a beat in, and then I think Shipchan's going to put her out. I, and you know what? I'm gonna. I've been picking some spectacular knockouts. I'm like, do it again. I'm gonna say Shevchenko high kicks her in the face like she did. Jessica I gets another spectacular knockout. Give me Shevchenko by, I'll say third round knockout. There you go. Uh, two strong calls for Valentina Shevchenko to continue to make her case as the top pound for pound woman in the sport and uh, set the record for most uh, consecutive defenses of a women's divisional title. I should. Add the qualifier that, in fairness, uh, Nunez has defended the Bantamweight title five times and has defended the Featherweight title twice over that same span of time. So she has the most consecutive total title defenses, just so the pedantic people don't get at me in the comments. That brings us to the main event, a Featherweight title fight between champion Alexander the Great Volkanovsky and challenger Brian T-City Ortega. Volkanovsky, the 32-year-old Australian, is 22 and 1 overall. He is 9 and 0 in the UFC, completing what I believe is a 19 fight winning streak for him. Uh, that 9 and 0 run in the UFC, of course, includes defeating Max Holloway for the featherweight title and then defending it once against him uh, in his last fight. That was last July at UFC 251. Uh, he faces Ortega, his challenger, and of course his opposing coach on. Season 29 of The Ultimate Fighter, which just wrapped uh, a month or two ago. The 30-year-old from Torrance, California, is 15-1 and one with one no contest. He is 7-1 and one with one no contest uh, since joining the UFC back in 2014. Uh, fought most recently last October in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 180, taking a unanimous decision over Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie. Uh, that allowed him to bounce back from his unsuccessful challenge uh, for Holloway's title back in December of 2018. Prior to that, it had been six straight wins over Frankie Edgar, Cub Swanson, Hinata Moicano, Clay Guida, Diego Brandao, and Tiago Tavares. His uh, UFC debut win over Mike De La Torre was a first-round blitzing, but was overturned when he tested positive for performance-enhancing substances. And that was actual performance enhancers, not weed. Um, Volkanovski is the slight favorite here. He's minus 160, minus 165 or so. Uh, you can get Ortega at plus 140 as the uh, as as the underdog. Keith, 
Uh, you said right off the top that you like this fight. What do you like about it, and who do you like to win it? I, I love it. So I tweeted out today that it seems like everyone's talking about Nick Diaz returning. It's probably all, and I'm like, what an absolute shame that the main event is getting overshadowed because you have two of the best fighters in the world in a extremely intriguing matchup that should not be getting overshadowed by two guys near 40 at the end of their career. Uh, Volkanovski is one of the most underappreciated champions in the UFC. I mean, he beat Max Holloway in, in back-to-back fights. Uh, even if you, a lot of people think Max Holloway won the second one, I'm okay with the decision either way. The first one was clearly Volkanovski. Uh, and then Brian Ortega, look what he just did, the Korean Zombie. It's 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 just a it's just a fun stylistic matchup with a lot of questions and I'll get right into it. Um, Volkanovski, he is a short, very short for the weight class, compact striker. That is the thing out of everything he does, all his tools, his intelligence is what jumps out to me more than anything. He's a very he's a thinker. He's very intelligent. He's very well coached. Very well prepared. Um, and I don't want to say Peyton Manning was obviously an incredible quarterback, but like he didn't have the greatest arm. He didn't have the, but he was so prepared. Tom Brady, and I'm not calling anybody. No, I'm from New England. <laughs> Nobody loves Tom Brady more than I do. But I'm not saying Alec Buckner is Tom Brady, but like Tom Brady doesn't have the greatest arm. He does, but like nobody's more prepared than Tom Brady. That's why I feel like Buckner. He seems so prepared, and he knows what he needs to win. And he seems I've seen it in every fight. Um, He's got underrated hand speed. He's really quick movements. Like he's very good at like little feints, little movements. Uh, good. He used good lateral movements. His in the way he his footwork against Jose Aldo. Uh, he really uses his feet to get away from strikes instead of just head movement. Um, he's he's a pressure counter striker that if he wants to get you on your back foot, he's just taking those little steps, uh, little movements when you you back up. He's get, always gaining ground. Uh, keeping the pressure on you, he cuts the cage off well, so he doesn't let you get any escapes when he when he when he's got you backing up. Great output. Does a uh, go back to the Max Holloway fight? A lot of hand fighting. He was using the hand fighting, even though he's a shorter fighter. He was using the hand fighting that he always knew what range he was in, and he actually the hand fighting he knew when he grabbed the hands. He knew he was in at least kicking range where he could kick Max Holloway. Uh, Great, great at countering shots. Like you strike him, he, he he's very good. He has that. I want to get one back for you, but he does it very intelligent. Like he'll throw a different strike, not just an automatic uh, straight right down the pipe. Uh, uses feints well to kind of freeze in, especially in the first fight against Max Holloway. Is when we, we when I talked about the the second fight, he he kept freezing Max Holloway with feints in the first one, and then he was get Max Holloway. Uh, kind of come out of his own strike. And then Volkanovski was landing combinations. He was picking up reads. He was he set up his attack like in, in some fights with a jab. Like a, For a guy who's short, you don't think of a jab. And he jabbed up Darren Elkins. He jabbed up Chad Mendez. Uh, his overhand right is his money punch. He kept going over the top of Max Holloway and landing it. Go back to... Chad Mendez fight, he was landing the overhand run on him. Going back to Darren Elkins fight, like the, the ones I'm bringing up, landed on him. He goes, he's intelligent where he'll go high, high, high. The next punch comes down to the body, something he did to Chad Mendez. Hard leg kicks. Uh, and he hides his entries with a strike, and he looks to wrestle. He wrestles just like, it's like 50 50 with him 
Like he gets you striking, he gets you wrestling. It's not one or the other. Um, I don't think he's the most technically sound wrestler, and I actually think his wrestling is maybe a a, a tick overrated. In a, in a in in just a pure wrestling match sense, uh, because he doesn't chain takedowns together. He's more of a just a guy who just he's so strong. If he gets your leg, he's just gonna lift you up and pull you out and use that like professional rugby strength that he has and slam you if he's on top fantastic ground and pound some of the best pinning against the cage just unloading staying busy and if in the times he's been put on his back or in a bad position he stays so um calm and and composed in bad situations and that's another thing i love about this guy now move over to brian otega i said that Alex Volkanovski short for the weight class. Brian Ortega is the complete opposite. He's huge for the weight class. He's a big dude. Uh, he's an outstriker who switches stances back and forth. Really, he's one of the few guys who can really fight from both stances. Uh, great jab. I mean, that's that's the thing that has really developed. The jab is basically what beat the Korean Zombie. Now, I don't remember the spinning elbow in the second round that hurt, and, and Korean Zombie really didn't recover, and I think that was a huge factor. But everything was coming off the jab from him. And Korean Zombie couldn't get inside. Just He couldn't get by when he was hurt. He had no answer for the jab. Uh, one thing I don't like about Brian Ortega, a lot of single strikes, though. One strike at a time. Not throwing combinations. Uh, he does attack the body, though. He does have hard leg kicks. Uh, I also don't like defensively that he pillars. He does A lot of his defense is covered in pillaring, which leaves you open to body shots. Something that I think Volkanovski is going to have a lot of success with. Uh, especially being a shorter fighter, the body's more open. Uh, but in the clinch is actually a place that I love Brian Ortega, where he he gets the clinch and he doesn't even look like the damage. He looks for a, a moment where you're going to try to press him, press you, your body against him, press him against the cage, and then he has this thing where he just like basically pulls guard and reaches all the way over and he slides the guillotine so well. Something that being that. Volkanovski is shorter than him. It's something it might be even easier for him to get. His jiu-jitsu style is very Charles Oliverish, and and what I mean by that is he's an opportunistic who's always chasing the submission instead of cure, securing a position. Like he he is not Damian Maya. Like Damian Maya is a guy take you down, work inch for inch, secure the position, get the sub. Charles Oliveira has never been like that. Charles Oliveira he just wants to scramble and catch something. That's what Brian Ortega is, and if He's Brian Ortega is a guy that I think would struggle with the top grapplers in a jiu-jitsu tournament, but that's not an MMA fight. MMA fight, you're punching, you're kicking, you're scrambling, you're moving, you can't stay on the bottom because you're losing time, you're losing rounds, and that's when openings happen, which is why Charles Oliveira has done so well. It's why um, Ronnie Yaya is a guy who has a very similar style to that. Brian Ortega, another one where he just he needs one second, one spot. You left your neck open for a second, and he takes it. Um, and another reason why he's that's his style is he's not a powerful wrestler like a Damian Maya, like a Jacare Sousa. He's more he's a guy who reaches for takedowns. He's a guy that will just pull guard if he has to get it there. Uh, and then and uh, that's some of the things that stand out to me about him. This is such a fantastic fight. Volkanovski is going to have to be perfect because that's what Brian Ortega has historically done. He loses, he loses, he loses until suddenly he's not losing. I mean, I remember his run up until he fought Max Holloway. That was like the, that was like the ongoing theme until I think he knocked out 
was it Frank Yeager he knocked out? Like before that, it was, oh, Brian Ortega's not that good. He's always losing, losing, then he finds a way to catch a mission. He wasn't losing, losing, then he finds a way to catch a mission. Um, on the feet, he's, Volkanovski's going to have to get past the first layer, which is going to be the Ortega jab. But what if he can really get the fight similar to Max Holloway, where he's hand fighting, he's getting inside, where he can like just flick a kick out and kick out the inside leg, stuff like that. If he does that, Volkanovski has too many tools. He has a lot more tools at his disposal than Ortega does. And I think he connects. I think he connects on a lot of good shots. And I actually think that's the range that happens. I like Volkanovski to be too fast, a better athlete. And, yeah, he's going to have to be perfect. I think there's going to be times where Ortega's jumping guard, pulling guard, pulling, trying to throw up arm bars, whatever it is. And, and we're going to have some exciting moments where he's going to have to scramble. But I think overall, I think Volkanovski is going to be up to the challenge. I think he's going to pick him apart. Give me Volkanovski by decision. And honestly, I'm pretty confident in this pick. So at right now, I've been saving this the whole time. Right now, Volkanovski's – would you say the odds were negative? It's like minus 140 or so. My, like pretty ne- close. Minus 140? I mm-hmm. love that bet. Like I think Volkanovski should be like minus 180, almost close to two. Give me Volkanovski as, as my best bet of the night at minus 140. Now, I want to say this real quick. If if you gamble, please gamble responsibly. If you follow my bet, I'm not I'm not a bet an expert. I just throw it out there. Just one bet. I think it's the best one. If you want to spend some money, do it. Don't bet your mortgage or anything stupid like that. Please bet responsible. But also, I haven't thrown this one out there. This is also my fight of the night pick. Why? Because it's the main event. And um, there's a couple of ones I want to throw out there, but I want to give the fight of the night to the main event because I think we're gonna have some. Awesome thing. But the one thing I did not throw out, if, you, if you've been paying attention, I did not have a single upset special. I've never done this. I picked all favorites tonight. Every single fight I picked the betting favorite. Uh, that's not me. You guys know me. Usually I'm the opposite. I think one time I picked like 9 out of 13 fights underdogs, something like that. Uh, yep. Not the case tonight. I went all underdogs. Unless you pick Cody Plungers at, at like 195. But other than that, uh, those are my picks. Give me Volkanovski. I think both champions retain the belt awesome thank you so much um yeah um all, all chalk for keith tonight very rare for him because he's normally the wilder one of the two of us there i mean there was one time when he picked like nine out of 13 or nine out of 14 but usually yeah about a quarter of them are, are upset calls from from keith uh you mentioned you know that these two fighters are polar opposites in a lot of ways uh volkanovsky obviously short stocky powerful i mean he's the guy that made us all stop laughing about how patricio pitbull might do against top ufc featherweights we're like ah it would look like a joke if he came over and fought max holloway and then a guy exactly his size beat max holloway twice (laughs) uh whereas ortega is tall rangy they're both great athletes but volkanovsky is you know an explosive athlete ortega he's a fluid athlete is the only way i can put it like everything he does is comes off looking very natural. He has a lot of stinging power in his strikes without looking like he's overwinding on stuff just because his body mechanics are just very smooth. He's a natural athlete. Like it's no surprise at all that he's like a really good surfer. You know, he just, he, he seems like that type. Um, you, you alluded to the fact that Brian Ortega has traditionally not been a round winner. I mean, it's, it's beyond man. Like up until the Korean zombie fight, he had not won a single round in his entire UFC run. He made it all the way to a title shot without winning a single round. He lost rounds until he until he found a finish. And you you 
danced around some of the reasons for that. He's not a high volume striker. Uh, he's an opportunist and he is often willing to let the other fighter dictate the, you know, the pace and range and even the location of the fight, uh, you know, until he finds his opportunity. I think Alexander Volkanovsky is a really, really bad guy to try that approach against. Uh, because if there's one thing that Alexander Volkanovsky does, win or lose, and it's been all win for a long, long time, he takes control of his fights. Uh, like, he is the one that is, he's going to dictate the distance, and he's going to try to dictate where the fight takes place. Uh, like, he he's a bully. Um, and even against other bully-type fighters, you know, he he's the one that, that wants to control like he he is the the octagon or like the ring general um it's interesting his his striking game has been developed almost entirely during his ufc run if you look at his last few fights in australia and his first three or four in the ufc uh first couple fights in the ufc like uh yusuke i uh kasuya mizuto hirota uh, shane young even up to the jeremy kennedy fight dude he wanted the takedown really bad right from the first round. Like he, he shot for a takedown. I, I didn't time it, but I bet he shot for a takedown within the first 90 seconds of all four of those fights and willing to strike, but didn't look super comfortable. Like he's just such a better striker than he was, uh, four or five years ago. Uh, I have to imagine that's part of joining city kickboxing. Cause he, he wasn't a part of city kickboxing until fairly late in his, uh, in his regional run. But I, I'm, I'm with you here. Like if Ortega is still the type of guy who, you know, is willing to, you know, take that kind of, uh, I mean, it's almost like a, a Diaz brothers uh, approach. Like, I don't care where the fight takes place. You know, I'm, I'm going to box you up. And if you take me down, then I'll tap you out. This isn't the guy to take that approach against. Um, I, I do agree that the biggest dynamic this hinges on and what we'll learn about probably within the first half of the first round is how easy a time or how hard a time Volkanovsky has getting past Ortega's jab. Like if he's able to get inside on him effortlessly, that's going to open up those, those nasty little inside leg kicks. It's going to open up uh, his body work, which then, you know, sets up his, his overhand, which as you pointed out is like his, his big blow. Uh, obviously it makes the takedown, like the takedown game is going to run off that. But I have, I'm guessing that he's going to be able to do that. And I have Volkanovsky in this one as well. And like you, I think it will seem a little more lopsided than the odds would seem to make it right now. Even though I understand why the odds are that way, because Ortega is such a finisher and you just picture, you know, oh man, he was losing this fight. He was getting like mauled by Clay Guida and then he just zapped him, you know, or so, like, I, I can understand why. And if he does that to Volkanovski, I won't be that surprised. That's, like, the second most likely outcome other than just, like, a one-sided decision. But I'm going to go with the one-sided decision. Uh, give me Alexander Volkanovski to win this fight and probably win four of the five rounds. There you go. Anything else you want? Oh, so, yeah, go. The only thing I'd say, and and this is on the UFC, if Alex Volkanovski wins, that's 20 wins in a row. Like that is not stressed enough. Like that need they need to stop promoting a twenty fight winning streak. Like that they need to like do their best Goldberg type streak thing going on. Completely agree. And we've talked about this before. It's it makes such a difference if you have a dumb, stupid, fluky loss early in your career. Because if he was even if he just never fought that guy and he was twenty two and zero right now, uh, it'd be we'd huge. be call we'd be calling him the the like maybe the best pound for pound fighter in the sport. 
Like yeah. so much changes Seriously. because of some dumb loss in like 2013 in his fourth fight. And I and I'll 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 pull back the curtain a little bit. We have our I was just looking at the sure dog pound for pound rankings, and both me and Ben are contributors on that. Volkanovski is currently fifth. He's behind John Jones and Harry Cejudo. Cejudo uh, uh, at four and Jones at three. I know both. They'll both I, drop off the list pretty soon. Yeah, they're both <laughs> in activities coming off. But regardless, if he beats up Brian Ortega in and wins four out of five rounds, five out of five rounds, something like that. I'm calling him to at least skip both those guys. Well, then, you, uh, for me, I'd probably place him right behind Kamaru Usman, another guy who lost one dumb fight early in his career and has just walloped everyone else since. I know. Yeah, but like, you know what? Hey, shout out to who those two guys who beat him. The guy who beat him, Usman, and the guy who beat Volkanovski. Shout out to those dudes. Yeah, you, you guys, I, nobody I, can I, take I, that I'm away sure from you. Listeners. If, if they're listeners, yeah. it, shout get out to at those. us. We'll yeah. get you on the next show. We'll get you on the next show. There you go. Uh, that is the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 266 Volkanovski versus Ortega. Thank you for listening. Uh, the card takes place this Saturday at T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. It, of course, will be on uh, pay-per-view through ESPN+. Plus. Uh, immediately after the main event, the Shillin and Duffy show will be on the air live on YouTube. We'll break down the whole card. Obviously, there's going to be a whole ton to talk about with two title fights, with whatever happens in uh, the feature fight between Diaz and Lawler, not to mention important fights all the way down the card. Please do join us uh, when we do the live recap. The chat is open. Uh, we take your questions. We take your comments. Uh, if we got some picks horribly wrong, we we take your abuse with a smile. It, it is all love there. But, uh, you know, like, until share, then. Like, share. Like, Subscribe, like share subscribe all that's all, all that stuff uh you know the comments i get most uh often is this show is great you know why don't you guys have more views because we are analysts not salesmen um <laughs> yeah we don't do that enough guys so do it for us yeah. please yeah please 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 do, do our work for us um but <laughs> un until then enjoy the rest of your week enjoy the fights and we will catch you right after the main event on the shillin and duffy show